Welcome everyone to the games people play. Looking for redirect, but loose in front of the goal. Does anything in particular stand out as the run it for the end zone for the touchdown? This is Bernie Corbett saying, "Play the game well." Once again, on the games people play, uh, we go back to the beginning and uh, get to the uh, the essence, uh, the the roots, if you will, and development of our guests. Uh, your case at uh, the beginning in in uh, Lawton, Oklahoma. Uh, your dad, uh, long-standing uh, military man, 25 years, and uh, also uh, two tours in Vietnam, Vietnam veteran. Uh, we had Buck Martinez on the show recently. His dad was a World War II veteran, and I really uh, have to ask you, did he ever talk about his uh, experiences in Vietnam to you uh, when uh, you and your family were young? But as we got older, and uh, we were able to sit down and talk to him, especially being in high school, talk about history from a person who's been in a war. And so I was able to uh, get information from father about his time in Vietnam, his two tours in Vietnam, and, you know, what military life was all about. And, uh, you know, really instilled in me structure and discipline. Uh, my dad was a strict military man, man. I mean, everything, everything was about you know, discipline and, and, you know, there's codes and, um, you know, we had to live by that. Me and my three brothers, uh, we grew up kind of like soldiers per se. I didn't even know how to tell time until I was like in the sixth grade. We were going, we were always using military time. So when the teacher said, Hey, we're going out at 12 o'clock, I wouldn't even know what she's talking about. I need military time, lady. Come on, give me some military time. So you needed to hear lunch at 01200 at that point. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> and uh, your dad also uh, athletic background, uh, played uh, small school in Arkansas, Philander Smith College. He was a defensive end. Yes, he was a football player. I come from an athletic family. Uh, my mother ran track. Uh, she was athletic. My, my dad's dad played football. Uh, big hands. I kind of wish I had my dad's hands. He has those those huge hands. I used to call them cigar fingers. because <laughs> And uh, kind of got a mix between my mom's hands. People think I have big hands, but... Me putting my hands next to his is like the incredible hope. I mean, he- you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Stacy about uh, your mother and uh, well, your dad uh, was more of the, I guess, uh, in the American cinema, the Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type. Your mother was the one that was a little bit uh, more uh, talkative, uh, loquacious. Maybe had a little bit more influence on your second career. With your dad, more of an influence on your first career. Yeah, you know what, my mom played an important role in my life in general, because as my dad would be, you know, going off on military duty, being stationed in different places, um, you know, there's four boys, and there's a big gap between my second brother and myself and my younger brother. It's like a seven-year gap. And so my mother had been moved, they'd moved around a lot to different bases. They were in Massachusetts, they'd been to Germany, you know, Greece. And so when me and my younger brother came along, you know, my mom's like, that's enough. We need to be grounded. I don't want to have to be moving four kids around all the time. Cause as you know, moving is very difficult. If you're moving every two years because of military commitment, you can understand a mother not wanting to engage in that. So when me and my younger brother came along, uh, she made a pact with my dad, like, hey, I'm staying here in Lawton, Oklahoma. I'm raising these kids here, and I want them to have stability. And, um, and my dad would go off in two years, three years, and, you know, we'd hardly see him. And my mom became the mom and the dad. And, you know, my dad would call. We didn't have FaceTime or Zoom back then. We'd talk to him on the phone. But as you know how hard that could be, not actually seeing your father, you know, for stretches, two years, three years, mm. my mom had to become the mom and the dad, you know, and then also be working full time, 
you know, to support the family as well as my dad supporting from afar. And she had you at a very early age, and I, I thought uh, this was uh, quite compelling, uh, to get you focused and to get you grounded, write out your goals and your priorities, and to just to give you a track in which to stay on uh, in establishing for, for you really as, as life skill, as a, as a life skill. Bernie, that, that's something, it's funny you say that, because that's something I still use to, to this day, even in my 50s. And, you know, my mom at a very young age, from, from as early as first grade, uh, used to make me sit down and write the goals that I wanted to accomplish for that particular year. And there'd be, you know, 10 goals. And as we got older, got more goals. And it wasn't just goals of athletic achievements, you know, how many goal, how many points I'm going to score, how many touchdowns I'm going to score in football. It was more on the lines of educational, more on the lines of, you know, accountability and dependability. I'm going to do all my chores on time. I'm going to do my homework on time. I'm going to make straight A's. It wasn't all about sports. My mom could care less whether I could dribble a basketball or not. She could care less. You know, my dad, on the other hand, you know, that's his, that's his thing. He wanted us to be great in sports. But my mom was more in tune to education. Uh, she was more in tune to, you know, having her kids understanding respect, respecting people, respecting adults. And uh, I thought that's, that has been a big key in my development. She had a little bit of an influence with you with pottery as, uh, as a hobby. So you got the ceramic nickname at, at one point that I thought was, uh, was of interest. But people might not know. Yeah, <laughs> that was uh, my mom. My mom, her best friend, uh, gave me that nickname, and I would always tag along, and I would always be playing in the clay and me making messes. And so the lady and my mom said, "You know, his nickname ceramic." Never liked it. <laughs> I, I never liked it. It's not something I told everybody. Um, not too many people. But you knew I've been doing some serious digging, man. You might be working for the FBI, but she's the only one who can get away with calling me that. Long way. We're going to be tracing the path from ceramic to juggernaut here today, Stacy. Uh, Stacy, when uh, you got to high school and uh, you're about six seven at the time, uh, a rather wiry 180 pounds. Uh, your reputation as a high school player, you certainly had quickness and ability to run the floor. Uh, you touch around the basket, uh, which uh, uh, certainly played out uh, through your career. Uh, at six seven, a uh, pretty fearsome as a shot blocker around the rim defensively, but uh, one area that uh, that needed to be addressed uh, was your overall strength. You were still growing, uh, very much uh, growing into a body that would eventually uh, come to six ten at the time. Yeah, you know what? I, I you know my growth pattern was really kind of wacky because I, I went from as a freshman in junior high school, I went from about six foot one to my sophomore year, which I grew probably five inches over the summer. So I grew extremely fast in like spurts. So from six foot one to six, seven from ninth and 10th grade year. So um, my body was just going through all these changes. And um, I went from playing basically like a, a guard, small forward type of player to now I'm a post player. So I was kind of uncoordinated because I grew so fast and I had to grow into my body. And um, it's funny because in that, in that one little period of time, I grew, you know, almost five, six inches. Wow. And from my sophomore <laughs> year to my senior year in high school, I grew one inch. So if you would have saw me my sophomore year, you thought I was going to be about seven, two. And then by the time I left and graduated, <laughs> by the time I graduated, I only grew one inch. So <laughs> I went from 
ninth grade, the senior year, I went six inches. And so I thought I was done growing. And so when everybody was recruiting me, they were recruiting me basically as a small forward, power forward type of player um, because I had wing skills. I could face up and shoot. So they were, they were thinking they were getting a, a wing player. And when I went to, when I, when I signed with the university of Oklahoma, I went from six, seven to six, 10 over that summer. So there was another kind of big spurt of like three inches between my senior year and before the start of my freshman year. It was really kind of crazy. So six, 10, by the time you arrived uh, in Norman. And as far as the recruiting process, uh, obviously native of lot in Oklahoma, uh, were you always a Sooner fan? And what, what was uh, the madness of uh, recruiting like uh, for Stacey King? Were there other schools that were in the running that you considered and visited and so forth? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was considered one of the top uh, players in my position in, in, my, in the country. You know, I, I, I think the big thing that, that helped me, Bernie, was AAU. You know, had I not played AAU for two summers, I don't think I would have had the attention that I was getting. Um, I would have just probably been known just by local you know, local colleges. Um, I wasn't a big OU fan per se. I was a fan of OU football because I played football uh, early on in my career and I was a big OU football fan. I didn't really like their basketball team because they weren't winning. And, um, you know, they had, some, they had some interesting characters on the team, you know, but they just weren't winning. And until they got Wayman Tisdale there, he made it interesting and, and, and made Oklahoma, he put Oklahoma on the map basketball-wise and made it pretty cool to go there. But, when I was growing up, Tulsa Golden Hurricanes with Nola Richardson was the, the school to go to. They were the, the big-time school with Paul Pressey and Brian Winter. Uh, they had a nice team. And Nola Richardson, as you know, is one of the greatest college coaches of all time. And that was in his early, you know, early uh, career at Tulsa. And uh, he, had the, he had the Golden Hurricanes being the team you wanted to go to because they played a fast-tempo type of play they they played more of an NBA style game up and down so as little kids we all we all grew up wanting to play for Nola Richardson Oklahoma wasn't even in the in the picture for myself but I think AAU really opened the door I had a great AAU coach we won some national championships um uh over the summer with the Oklahoma City Rams and uh I had a coach there that I owe a lot to his name is Johnny Williams the late great Johnny Williams he's he's been one of the greatest Oklahoma AAU basketball coaches of all time. And uh, Wayman played for him. Mark Price played for him. Uh, Steve Hill that, that played in North Carolina played for him. So a lot of great Oklahoma players played for the great Johnny Williams. And and so he's the one that really got me believing that I could I could be really good. I mean, he, he took me under his wing and basically, you know, made me, showed me like, hey, you're just as good as these guys you're reading about in Parade and Smith and Street and Smith magazines and you know, I'm looking at all these kids, Ben Wilson, and, you know, all these, these great, you know, kids that are from big cities. Because they, they don't really give Oklahoma their due because Oklahoma's a football state. So, you know, but all these guys from Chicago, New York, you know, Rod Strickland, um, you know, all these guys are getting a lot of press in high school. And, you know, I was like, man, I want to play against these guys to see how good they really are and to see how good I am against these guys. And AAU gave me that that um, opportunity to do that, and I was able to play against some of the best, you know, players. Some went on the NBA, some didn't. Some had great college careers, you know. Some didn't make it to college. Um, you know, I got a chance to play against Ben Wilson, who um, at that particular time probably, you know, could have went from been the first kid to come out of uh, high school right to the pros. He was that good. I mean, um, I mean, played like I mean, if you you compare his game to anybody. 
Back then they were comparing him to Magic Johnson because of his size and his ability to handle the ball and pass. But if you look at today's player, who he reminds you of, he reminds you a lot of Kevin Durant, uh, but with nastiness. Like, he's nasty. And uh, he, he reminds he's long, lean, can shoot the basketball from anywhere. Uh, he's probably the, he probably could have, probably could have been a hall of famer had he had the opportunity to play. But as you know, the story, you know, gunned down, you know, at high school at lunch and, uh, one of the tragedies, um, that, you know, I'm sure everyone knows about. It, 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 indeed the case that, uh, as, as far as the, uh, the, the recruiting process, uh, it, uh, it, it, it came to my attention at one point, uh, Oklahoma's efforts included a red wine colored limo, uh, pull, <laughs> pulling up to your house and uh, needless to say uh, Mrs. King was far from impressed uh, that didn't go a long way with Lois in terms of uh, pointing it towards Norman <laughs> well, well let me let, let me tell you the real story on that so okay my mother did my mother on the on the in-home visit with Billy Tubbs my mother couldn't stand him she thought he was cocky she thought he was disrespectful uh, I thought he was cool. I, I, I liked him. I liked him from the get-go. His personality. He hit it off. Yep. I, I hit it off because he would be the guy that if you were playing pickup games, he'd be the guy always talking trash. But he'd also be the guy busting your ass, too, while he's talking trash. So that's why I liked him. And he told you what he was going to do. He told you how he was going to run his program. He told you what the expectations were, that they were going to kick every team's butt. We're going to run the score up on him. He said all this before he, I even signed with them. <laughs> And uh, they think, you know, they think this is just a football school, but we're going to make it a basketball school and you can be a big part of that. And, you know, he, he kind of sold me on it, but I still, I still wasn't really like committed to him. And um, so what happened was the story, what happened, the true story, what happened was they came up to my school. I, I'm because they're only about an hour away from my hometown. So I had been up there on unofficial visits all the time because I had friends that played football um, I had other friends that went to school there. So I was up there every weekend anyway. So I, so I was, I was officially making unofficial visits almost every weekend because it was so close. And so I didn't feel like I needed to, to commit to a full-time visit. Why waste one of my five visits when I can actually drive up there and use it as an unofficial visit and keep that one of my five visits somewhere where I really want to go. And so that's why I never officially visited Oklahoma uh, at that time, at that point. But then, and then they came to my school in a limousine, and um, they had said they were coming to get me, and uh, they're going to come get me, and we're going to, you know, we're going to do official visit, yada yada. And I had two visits left, and they were they they basically my mom thought they kidnapped me, so they pulled up <laughs> to school uh, in a limousine in a in a red a red crimson limousine with my name on the on the uh, on the on the vanity plates, you know, sky. <laughs> three and they pulled up right in front of the school where everybody could see okay. and i had really going because I, I was like i don't know i was waffling back and forth and i had never committed to going it was on a friday i never committed to going but they showed up and when they showed up in limousine i saw that all the people going crazy and taking pictures and and all the girls you know because you know it's all about the girls in high school all the girls thought coolest thing and so i played into it i'm like okay they got they brought me a limousine they bought stacy a limousine look at stacy's limousine he's got his name on it so i get in the limousine and, and i leave because i'm done with school and i had you know i had you know early classes that day and i'm you know i had most of the afternoon off and i jumped in the limousine all the coaches there you know coach tubbs coach mims uh <laughs> coach jim Kirk, 
and I mean, every assistant that was an assistant was in that limo. And uh, they came and got me. And so I went, and then I said, hey, I got to call my mom <laughs> to let her know where I'm going because, you know, they said, we're going to get you back this, you know, we're just going up there for half the day. We're going to bring you back, blah, blah, blah. So I thought I'd be home before my mom got home, and I never would have to tell her because she hated Oklahoma. She did not want me to go there. Mm. Did not want me there. And she sure in the heck did visit. So I kind of went there, and then once I got up there, and they were showing me everything, and they, I mean, you know, how, uh, you're 18 years old, and you see all these people catering to you, and you see all these, like, fantastic things, and I've been to a lot of places. I mean, I've been to UNLV, you know, I've been to, you know, Kentucky, I've been to all these places, and they were, they set it out for me. I mean, literally, I felt like I was, like, a king there, for real, and uh, <laughs> it's, we're ready to go, we had a good time, da da da, and we're ready to take you back, and I said, well, I'm not ready to go back. I'm gonna, I want to stay up here for the weekend. I was having such a good time. I was like, I just want to stay the weekend. So my mom, I called mom and told her, I said, hey, mom, I'm, I'm just going to stay up here for Norman. What are you doing up in Norman? How did you get to Norman? I'm like, mom, just calm down, calm down. Well, did, that, did that SOB come and pick you up? Did he kidnap you? And I'm like, mom, he didn't kidnap me. I went on my own. I went on my own free will. I said, I'm cool. Don't worry about it. I'm on I'm my I'm visit. I'm good. You get your blankety blank home now. <laughs> she was really upset. She she literally called the police and said I was kidnapped. And um, I had to I had to you know I had to clear that up with everybody and, and said no I'm here on my own. Oklahoma to do that. Yada yada. But it was it was. My mom hated it so much that she almost refused to go to national signing date when I um committed to Oklahoma my dad really made her go she was not going to go and uh she was that she hated Oklahoma that much <laughs> I get this image of uh Billy Tubbs with the chauffeur's cap and the sign standing in front of the school king king uh you know and and, and, and picking you up but so she's absolutely adamant about not going to Oklahoma what was oh, well, you, but you know the worst thing that happened though is like and I would you know I took my mom on a visit one visit of all the visits that I went to, you know, I was, I was looking at uh, Maryland because when I, North Carolina and DePaul were my two favorite schools. I wanted to go to either one of those schools. Cause that's just, those are the schools I grew up watching. It wasn't because of Michael Jordan. It's because I liked North Carolina. I liked the colors. I liked the way they play. And, um, and I followed them. And so they recruited me and in my junior year in high school, they offered me a scholarship and um, you know, the kids, you live for your five official visits. That's what you live for your senior year to go on five official visits. And they wanted me to commit right away, which that would turn, I would not be able to go on my five visits because I'd already committed. So I, I asked them, I said, well, no, I don't really want to commit now, but I, can I commit after I do my five visits after my senior year? And they basically told me that, you know, they only have one or two scholarships a year, if that. And they're they're slotted out for, you know, your junior year, we got you. We got you and someone. I think it was Kevin Madden um, or Steve Bucknell from England that they ended up having uh, scholarships for, and then it would have been me. And so I chose, you know, I chose not to go. And they they said, well, we can't promise that we'll have a scholarship for you your senior year, but if one comes available, you know, um, we'll send you one. So I, I kind of, I felt slighted, like, wow, like if I'm good enough now, what makes you think I'm not going to be better the next year? And so that kind of ticked me off and they didn't offer me a scholarship because they didn't have one. And so Maryland, I looked at, I looked at the ACC and I wanted to go to a school that played North Carolina two or three times a year so I could give them the business. So I was going, I was going, to, I was going to go to any school just on like being, 
vengeful. I wanted to get back in North Carolina for not recruiting me and show them what they missed. So back in those days, if you remember, you know, the, you know, early eighties, you know, North Carolina was the kingpin. You had Wake Forest was, was pretty good at time with Anthony Tichy and, and, you know, those guys that were there, um, Kenny Green, um, and then Maryland, Maryland was the Duke wasn't Duke. Duke was at the bottom of the ACC at the time. And uh, Georgia Tech, these these teams weren't good at the time. So there was only like two or three. They were top-heavy with two or three teams. And I didn't really like Wake Forest, but I liked Maryland. And and I liked the way Maryland played. And so I went on an official visit to Maryland. I took my mom. And I, lo and behold, that was the worst decision I ever made because lefties is hell. And I love lefty. And if I, if I would have played for anybody – there's, there's two coaches besides Coach Tubbs that I would have played for. It had been Lefty Giselle, and then it had been Ray Meyer DePaul. Um, you know, those were, those are the coaches that I would have loved to play for. Um, and and I, went, I took my mom to, to Maryland. She had a great time. And, of course, Maryland is going to put your mom in situations where, where the school looks like family. Like, we go to church every Sunday. You know, they, we have family meetings and dinner, and Stacy's going to be fine down here, even though he doesn't know anybody. He's, you know, he's, you know, uh, you know 20 hours away. He's going to be fine here. We, we'll make sure he goes to church because my mom was very religious, and that was one thing that she always wanted to make sure that, you know, I kept going to church and, and, you know, kept doing the things that I needed to do on that side of it. And um, so she was won over by all that, you know, but I saw things, you know, I, my big thing was I, I saw Lynn Bias. Lynn Bias was one of my favorite players uh, growing up. And I got a chance to hang out with him uh, by myself. You know, he took me under his wing the whole time I was there and just a down to earth guy. And I, I know it, it hurts Boston Celtic fans, you know, because of what happened to him. And I just wish that he would have been able to play because I think he'd been able to play and, and play in Boston. Boston would probably still be a dynasty. Uh, and, and he might have been just as big as Michael Jordan, if not bigger, uh, because he had that much talent. And he was a great kid. He just made some bad decisions like young kids do. And we've all been in that situation. I've been in that situation myself where I have to make decisions that could alter my life one way or the other. And, you know, you have to choose right. You know, my the way I always choose things is what would my dad say? You know, that's when I get into those life-changing or life-altering things, uh, Bernie, I would always say, what would my dad do or what would my dad say? And I get my answer 100% of the time so I know which way to go. And sometimes kids don't look at it that way. They just, you know, they're they're living in the moment and it's a lot of fun a lot of attention and they get lost in that. And, and you got to be grounded. You got to have structure and discipline. And unfortunately, you know, that what happened to Lynn was, was terrible, but I, I would have loved to see him play. And, and I believe he would have been. Hello. Hello. Oh, you still there, Stacey? There. Oh, okay. Oh, I just, I just, uh, you just broke up. I just lost you there for a minute. About uh, just, you know, keep going about. You said about Len Bias. Yeah, you know, just you know, the, the opportunity to meet such a great player in Len Bias, and and you know, like I said, you know, it's it's so sad to to have seen and witnessed, you know, what happened to him because I think had he been, you know, had he lived, Boston probably won a few more championships, probably been, been still a dynasty. Um, I think, you know, I think he would have gone down as one of the greatest Celtics of all time and, and been a Hall of Famer in the NBA. He had that much talent. And, you know, who knows? He, he might have been on the level of Michael Jordan because he was that talented at the University of Maryland. And just, you know, bad decision, uh, you know, that he took 
you know, um, ended his life. And it's so sad because I got a chance to meet him and uh, he was a friend. And even when I chose Oklahoma, I was still talking to Lynn as a freshman. He would call me, see how I was doing, you know, making sure, you know, I'm going to class. So he, he, he was kind of a big brother to me. And he didn't just, it wasn't just because I went to Maryland on a recruiting trip and he was trying to, you know, you know, just, you know, butter me up. I went to another school and he was still talking to me and he was still talking to me like we were, like we were boys. And I really always appreciated that. And it's one of those things. And my mom was close to, to his mother and, and all the mothers there. And, and it was so sad because, you know, it's one of those things burning in history that, you know, you know where you were when certain things happened. Oh, you know, I you remember. might not remember. Yeah. I remember some things that are, that are not, not life altering, but there's certain things you remember in this in this lifetime that we've lived that you just will never forget. And that's one thing I'll never forget where I was and what I was doing when my mom came out of the house. I mean, literally running out the house like someone had was chasing her with a butcher knife and she was yelling for help. And I just remember just her bursting out in tears and crying and fell on her knees. And I'm thinking something happened to one of my brothers or my dad or something. And then she told me, you know, Lynn, Lynn's dead, Lynn's dead. I'm like, Lynn who? You know, and she said, Lynn's And I'm like, no way. Like, I could not believe it. I could not. It was like someone punched me in the stomach and was gasping for air trying to, you know, get my composure back. Because I'm like, I, I just talked to him like a week, a week before that. You know, wishing him good luck. And, and, you know, like I said, Lynn always kept in contact with me, even though I went to University of Oklahoma. So it wasn't just, like I said, it wasn't just because I visited Maryland. And then once I chose another school, he stopped talking to me. That made me show, that showed me that he was a real person that, you know, like, hey, I like you because you're a good kid. And I'm trying to help you and, and, and trying to make sure you're doing what you're, you're supposed to do. And I always appreciated that. And, and that's what I've always tried to do is pattern myself you know, after him, as far as, you know, caring about other people, trying to help people out and, and, you know, trying to give direction when I can. Well, being in Boston and uh, being a Celtics fan, I, I remember where I was. And I think the what ifs are, are, uh, are something that, that's, uh, that's haunted anybody uh, that has been a uh, Celtics fan or, or cared about the franchise now for over a 30 year period as to what would have happened wow. if, uh, if, if that had not happened uh, with, with Len Bias, that tragedy. And interestingly enough, my executive producer, Andy Bernstein, you talked to earlier, uh, he's got to know uh, Len's mother through his work uh, with, uh, with uh, recovery and uh, addiction. And she has been a tremendous advocate uh, in that area uh, for a number of years, Stacy, Remarkable woman, Lenise Bias. Yes, strong woman. I mean, because... I mean, if you know anything about, you know, anything about her history, she lost her, her younger son not long afterwards. And so to lose two sons, you know, in such a short period of time, that, I mean, that, that would kill a mom, you know, but, you know, she's, she's, you know, she was able to, you know, channel strength from God and, and be able to, you know, try to make change and make a difference in, in younger people's lives to, to get them to understand there's better ways than doing drugs and alcohol and, you know, and she's witnessed it firsthand, you know, so two tragedies and it's sad, but I had opportunity, like I said, to spend some time with her and very, very nice lady, very nice family. And, you know, you look back, Bernie, and what could have been, I mean, you get Lynn Bias playing and then you get Reggie Lewis and, and let's say both those guys are healthy and nothing ever happened to either one of them. 
you're, you're looking at a run that Celtics might have had, you know, just like when Ray Arbach was coaching when they, when they were the most dominant team, when they were putting six and seven in a row together. You, you might have saw that, and Larry Bird wouldn't have had a hurt back, and, you know, and, and all the pressure wouldn't have been on those, their big three of Parrish and McHale and, and Bird. And then you throw in, you throw in these two young studs with those guys. That, 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 that's a nasty lineup. Absolutely. 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 With what Absolutely. they uh, would have been capable of and taking the pressure off the big three as, as they were aging, as you mentioned. And, uh, and the decision, I, I guess it came down to Stacy picked Oklahoma. Lois would have picked Maryland. You picked Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another little tidbit about that. On the national signing date, up until the last minute, I think Lefty Giselle and his coaching staff, they realized that they're that Tubbs was coming up, that he was Oklahoma was coming in the picture. And so they spent a week in Lawton to try to make sure that I was gonna keep my, you know, keep my uh commitment to them. So they flew in um and they were they were ready and loaded and bunkered in, ready to make sure that I was gonna be committed to Maryland on that Friday. So they came in early. And here's what happened. <laughs> here's what happened. This is like Romeo and Juliet. I, I had a girlfriend they went to another high school, and uh, this is what you do for love. So anywhere I was going to go to school, she was going to go to school. So that was our plan. It was already worked out, blah, blah, blah. It didn't matter where I was going to go, she was going to go. The night before National Signing uh, Day, she tells me in the car, I said, hey, are you ready to go to Maryland? I'm, I'm excited. Are you ready to go? I go, we don't know anybody, but we'll have each other. And so she starts breaking down crying, you know, and I'm like, Uh-oh. okay. Oh, this is not good. This is not the time to be doing this because I've been asking her, if you're not sure, you need to let me know. I said, I got to let these people know. I can't, I can't wait to the last minute. You got to, you got to let me know. No, I'm going, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. So the night before, I'll never forget this. This is another one of those moments. You'll never forget where you were. I was in a car. We was in her car. And it was like about six o'clock at night. And, uh, she just starts, you know, she starts breaking down crying and saying she can't go. It's too far. She doesn't want to be away from her family and she doesn't know anybody and, you know, and she doesn't want me to go. And I, I'm like, why in the world are you telling me this now? Like, why didn't you tell me this, you know, four days ago or a week ago? Well, I was scared to tell you. And I said, oh, man. So now I'm thinking in my mind, like, I can't go to Maryland without this girl. So I'm going to have plans. So I go, well, where do you want to go? And she goes, I know you don't want to go, and I know you're going to be mad at me, but I'm going to go to the University of Oklahoma. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. And so so I thought about it, and I'm like, okay, I'm there. We're going. And so I had to call I had to call Coach Tubbs. And this was the night before signing, signing date. So I had to call Coach Tubbs, and, um, and this time they didn't have a scholarship. They had gave up all the scholarships. But um, – Miraculously, they found one for me. I don't know who they took, who they revoked, but they took it away and gave it to me. And um, they said, "Okay, we'll be there tomorrow." Blah blah blah. Have you contacted Maryland? And I, I said, uh, "No." <laughs> so I was a little scared because they were in town. So I go into my house, and of course, this is not going to sit well with my parents. And so my mom was just highly upset. I mean, she was just. She was highly upset. My dad was upset because he felt like I was manipulated and my mind was changed because of my girlfriend. And he couldn't believe that I would let her make a life decision uh, 
know, and instead of me making that decision for me and what's best for me, I let my girlfriend choose and it's going to be a big mistake. You're going to fail there, blah, 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 you know? And so I, I, I mean, I, I went with it. I, I said, Hey, what this is what we're going to do. I'm going there. I know you don't like it. And then my mom said, well, I won't be there tomorrow. I am not going to be there. I am not signing the papers to agree you go to Oklahoma. I am not doing it. And so she wasn't going to come. And that really hurt me because me and my mom are super close, super close. We were super close. And uh, her not being there, if my dad said he wasn't going to be there, it, it would have stung a little bit, but it wouldn't have hurt as much as it was with my mom. Cause my mom was like, she's always been there for me. And I, and everything I always did, it was for my mom, you know, to, to, you know, make my mom feel proud. Everything I did was for my mom, you know, most of the time everybody said they do it for their dad. I did it for my mom. I'm a mama's boy. So um, when she said she was, come Bernie I was kind of devastated and uh, it caused it caused a fraction in the family dynamics for a little bit so when the national signing day came I was at the table with all the other athletes and I was the last one to sign Uh, my mom wasn't there and I didn't see her she wasn't there yet I've been looking for like the first 30 minutes of the of the event she wasn't there and then lo and behold that's when I was getting ready to sign she was sitting in the very back in the corner by herself and my dad was standing up next to her and he gave me like, go ahead and sign it. And then uh, my mom was like, give me that look. Like she acted like she didn't want me to sign it. She's turning away and all that. She, she, she was kind of pouting. She was kind of pouting and uh, ended up signing. And, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the, it wasn't the decision that they wanted. And um, I understand why, um, but it was a decision that I had to live with and, and I had to stick with. And the hardest thing to do basically was to call coach left to Zell and tell him that night, because uh, my dad told me he wasn't going to do it. I'm not calling him. Uh, you're going to call him. You're going to be a man. You made this decision. This is your your choice. You're going to be a man, and you're going to tell them in their faces that you're not coming to the University of Maryland. So my dad made me not only call him, I had to go over to the Holiday Inn where they were staying at and, and meet him face-to-face, which is hard to do for, you know, 17-year-old kid uh, at that time, you know, to go up and go talk to an adult and stand up and be a man, but this is my training. This is the military background that I grew up, and this is how I was raised. So it really didn't phase me as much as you probably think it would for, for a kid in high school to have to stand up and be accountable. And uh, I went up and did it. And Coach Giselle, you know, was, I mean, if, if, if he could have cried right there in front of me, he would have cried and, uh, because they really wanted me. They really, really wanted me. And even years after I made my decision, I went to Oklahoma and I was all American and all that. Uh, he still, I see him as Sherman Dillard, who was an assistant coach at that time there. They, they always tell me if you would have came, we could have, we could have won. We could have done big things. We might've won a national championship. And I'm like, <sighs> but I couldn't go wrong. He said, but you didn't make a wrong choice. You went to Oklahoma and you went to the national championship. So I can't be mad at you. So even to this day, you know, it's good to see, you know, Coach Giselle and, and, and a lot of people that I, that I knew in Maryland still give me love. You decided uh, in a kind of a roundabout, as, as you've articulated, way to, uh, to head to Norman, the University of Oklahoma. Uh, basketball at a football school, an opportunity to, to carve a niche, if you will, to make a mark, uh, to, uh, to go to heights that had only been uh, achieved once, and that was all the way back to 1947 when – uh, Oklahoma had played in a national championship game. Uh, as a freshman, a little bit of a rocky road for you, Stacey, uh, in terms of uh, what happened from first semester to affecting your eligibility second semester. It was not exactly a smooth transition initially. 
No, no. And it's one of those, it's one of those situations where, you know, when you, when you're at home, there's so much structure there. I mean, your mom makes sure you're doing your homework. You're, they're making sure you're getting up and going to class. And, you know, for the first time in your life as a freshman, you have independence. You have no one telling you these things. You have no one, you know, riding you like a, a jockey in the Kentucky Derby, making sure you're doing everything right. You're on your own. You're, you're free to do whatever you want. You're free to sleep in, do whatever you want. And I think what I experienced my freshman year, what I think what a lot of freshmen experience is, is independence. You know, <laughs> you're able to do what you want when you want. And, uh, you know, I was there having a good time. You know, my first, my first semester there, you know, I was going to frat parties, things I never did before when I was at home. You know, you had curfew when you're at home at your parents' house. You know, you had to be in by, you know, 12 o'clock, you know, uh, 1 o'clock. You know, you had curfew. You know, when you get to college, there is no curfew. You can stay out as late as you want. You can do what you want, um, party, have a good time. And I got caught up in that. And I was having success, you know, as, as I, you know, started my college career. I was having success. I was the sixth man on a team that went to the Elite Eight the year before. And, you know, we lost Wayman Tisdale, you know, going into my freshman year. He left to go pro. And, you know, had he been there, you know, no telling how our team was because we had one of the best recruiting classes uh, that year. And um, and if you had Wayman Tisdale to that roster to a team that was bringing back everybody from the Elite Eight uh, appearance that team could have probably won a national championship, but Wayman went pro, and you know, like I said, you know, we as freshmen, a couple of the freshmen with me, we were just having a good time. We kind of forgot about class for a little bit, and uh, um, I ended up, you know, being uh, academically ineligible my second semester, which was a big blow to me because I was, I'm a, I was a smart kid. I always prided myself in in uh, making good grades and keep my mom proud and, and my dad proud and. I felt like I let everybody down in my my family. I think I, I felt like I let everybody down in my, my city that I'm from. And it was embarrassing for me because, you know, not going to class and, and being ineligible and your team needs you. You know, that year, you know, we played in the NCAA tournament and we got bounced, I think, by DePaul and uh, going towards the Sweet 16. And I, I, I everybody felt like had I been there, and played, you know, we might have gone pretty deep that year. So I felt like I let a lot of people down, my teammates, coaches, uh, my family, you know, my town, and that didn't really sit well with me. So I remember my dad, the military guy, coming up to, to the school, to my apartment, and he's in my apartment. I'm, I'm at, you know, I'm at the library trying to study. <laughs> so my dad, my dad got into my apartment, and he's packing up all my stuff, and he's packing up all my clothes, and, and he's going to bring me back to Lawton. And so when I come, I come there and I see him in my house, I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, you know, let's get your stuff. And he didn't say stuff. He, he said other things. He said, let's get you, let's get stuff. You're coming back home. You don't want to go to school. You're not interested in going to school. And why waste your time? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm like, I, I made a mistake. I didn't go to class, but I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to rectify that. I'm going to, I'm going to be good second semester. He goes, no, no, no. You just come on home. You, you don't want to go to school. You want to party. You want to hang out. So, you know, here's your choices. You know, this is what we're going to do when we go back home. He said, you can go into the military and, be, and get a career in the military, or you can go work at the Goodyear Tire Plant. And that's where everybody wanted to do it. Everybody pretty much goes in the military or they, you know, work at the Goodyear Tire Plant in my hometown. And so those were my only two options. Or you can get out on the street and sell drugs and do what all these other, you know, low-light people are doing. And, you know, you can do that and either be in jail or dead. 
Well, none of those choices appealed to me. <laughs> so, so, so that was that kind of that kind of was the quick. Let's turn this around, like right now. Let's let let's stop messing around. Let's get back on track. And uh, I refused to go with him. And so he uh, he ended up saying, you know, you're not gonna get too many more chances. You know, you need you need to you need to wake up. You need to grow up. And uh, that little that little talk kind of got me on the right track. Got the uh, the GPA, uh, got that up to two point six uh, on the rise. I always always talk about Stacy in college athletics being a college broadcaster for many years. There's the season and the reason, and you got to be able to rectify those two. And uh, it seemed like you, uh, you you found the right path. You got back on the right path. Uh, sophomore year was a little bit of a roller coaster for you, but uh, before your junior year, 1987-88, uh, Coach Tubbs uh, came to you and said. Your time in the sun is coming. How prophetic for both you and the Sooners with that magical year? Well, I mean, my, my, my sophomore year, you know, uh, like you said, it was a roller coaster. You know, when, when I started, I averaged almost 18 points a game and 10 rebounds. And guys who were playing in front of me were upperclassmen. And I felt like I was better than them. I felt like I did more than what they did. And, you know, they didn't work as hard as I did because I had to work extra hard after my freshman year to win back, you know, my trust in my, my coaches and my teammates. And I did that. And I felt like I should be starting. And, and I started games, the games I started, I probably started about 10, 12 games that year, averaged about 18 points, 10 rebounds. And I felt like I should be playing more and it didn't work out. And I got really frustrated and I started looking into transferring. Um, we play an NCAA tournament and um, a couple of our seniors, um, you know, broke curfew and then coach benched them, benched them like for the first 10, 15 minutes. And they were key players. These were big time players that he benched. And so he put me in the starting lineup for one of the guys who got benched. And we're playing, if you remember those Drome Lane and Charles Smith teams in Pittsburgh, uh, they're, in the, they're in the NCAA tournament that year. They're a top five team. Uh, everybody has them beating us. And then once they found out we had guys that were getting benched and may not play, you know, the line went up probably higher for them to beat us. And so we ended up playing them in the NCAA tournament. I ended up having a great game, like, you know, 18 points, 19 points, you know, 9, 10 rebounds, few blocks, outplayed Charles Smith. And that kind of was the was the coming out party. Because, you know, when you when you when you when you have good games, you know, it's in the biggest moments. You know, people remember that. And you you're in the NCAA tournament, everybody's watching. We're out there in the West Regional out in Arizona and we beat a highly ranked Pittsburgh team and uh, I play extremely well and get us to the next round, the Sweet Sixteen. And um so after that moment, Bernie, I thought, okay, I'm gonna be starting the rest of this tournament. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be ready. I'm ready to go. I'm going to try to get us to the final four, you know, as a, as a sophomore. And so the next game we play, we go to Seattle and we're playing in the kingdom in the sweet 16 and we're playing the university of Iowa. And that was the year that UNLV, uh, you know, went to the finals and they had that great UNLV team with Armin Gilliam, Freddie Banks and Jarvis Bass Knight. They had a really, really good team. And, um, we're in the same region as those guys. So, you know, we had beat Vegas that year earlier. So we felt like if we had beat them again in the finals, we could beat them in the regional finals. So, but we had to get through Iowa first. So I'm all excited. I'm ready. I'm coming off this big game against Pittsburgh. I'm expecting a bigger role. Coach Tubbs comes up to me and says, Hey, I want you to be ready to play. I, I, I'm, you're going to be big for us today. So now you're telling the 19 year old kid this, like I'm getting mentally psyched, ready to go. And he plays me five minutes, uh, five minutes. Yeah. Total. 
in a, in a 40 minute game. I played five minutes after coming off a huge game and I was devastated and he played these veteran guys and he went with his veteran guys. He went with the guys that basically I felt like he went with the guys that he, he that's been in those situations before. And at that time, that's hard to explain to a kid who just got you to this point. And he's a big reason why you're here and you're not going to play him. So I, I was, I was highly upset. So on the way back home, um, you know, I was sitting in the, I was sitting in a plane and um, the academic counselor came up. His name was Rick Pryor. And he came up to me, sat, you know, down to me. I told him at the arena, I said, hey, man, I need to talk to you on the way back home. And he asked me what it was about. I said, yeah, I'm just thinking about transferring. So I need you to, I need to get my, you know, get my records together, blah, blah, blah. So, of course, you know, he, you know, he's going to try to talk me out of it. So he comes up and he sits next to me. He says, you know, I said, Rick, I said, I'm tired of this, man. I, I can't play this roller coaster anymore, man. I, I got two years left and I need to go somewhere where I can play. And um, so he's like, um, you know, well, just, you know, Stacey, you know, you, we just lost your emotional, you know, take a couple of weeks off, you know, and, and then we'll sit down and talk. I said, no, Rick, I already know. I've been thinking about this for a long time. I'm not happy here. And I don't think it's ever going to change. And, you know, I'm too good to be sitting on the bench. I'm, I'm just too good. And so he's like, well, just think about it, and, you know, and, and, and let's talk when we get back next week. So he gets up. Lo and behold, he goes back and talks to Coach Tubbs mm. and says, hey, listen, I think you better go talk to Stacey King immediately. I, I, he's going to transfer. You do not. And now, now granted, now you got to remember, we're going to lose about four or five key players off our team. Yeah, so my status, junior, yeah. Four-year starter, so you're you're looking at a rebuild as a as a my junior year is supposed to be a rebuild year, and so he's like Tubbs comes up, and so I see him out the corner of my eye coming up because I hear his voice because he's got that he's got that country twang, so I know he's around the corner somewhere on the plane, so I see him walking up towards me, and I have my headphones on, my big headphones, that's those huge headphones that we see now that everybody's wearing, we were wearing them back there in the '80s, so so I have my I have my headphones on. And I'm playing like, you know, run DMC or some rap or some public enemy or something. And uh, so he comes in and I'm like, act like I'm asleep. So I see him because I know he's coming to talk to me. So I'm like I'm asleep. So he comes up and he, he pulls the, the ear of my, of my headset, of my headphones, and says, what are you listening to? That crappy rap music. And then he, you know, he drops the headset on my ear. So it smacks my ear. And so I'm already, I'm already pissed off. I'm like, dude. I will toss your little ass off this plane if you do that again. You know, that's how mad I am. So he says, do you want to sit down? And I wanted to say, hell no, but I did. So I said, yeah, 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 go ahead, coach. So he sits down and he goes, so I hear you're, you hear you're thinking about transferring. And, they, and I go, yeah. I said, who told you that, Rick? He goes, uh, I've been hearing a lot of stories. You know, I've been hearing some grumbling, so I wanted to hear from you first. Why do you want to do that? And I said, because I'm not getting the opportunity here and – you know, and I felt like, you know, I felt like I was better than some of the guys playing in front of me. And, you know, I, I just want an opportunity to play. I got two years left to, to, you know, show people I can actually play because I want to play basketball beyond college. And so he flat out told me, he said, you know, next year's your year. You know, you, you have to be patient, you know, but next year's your year. You're, this is a, this is going to be your year next year. And he said, you know, I expect this team next year to be better than any of the teams I've ever had. And I was just kind of, my eyes like yeah whatever whatever you're just saying that to try to keep me here and then we're gonna go through the same you know bs and uh he just told me to trust him and i said i'm just gonna drive home to see my parents <clears throat> and i'm gonna go talk to my parents and see what they say 
and I'll make a decision on based on what my family thinks, what's best for me. And so, so as he was getting ready to leave, he, he goes, he goes, Hey, let me just tell you one thing. And he said, you write this down. He said, your future is bright. Just make sure you're wearing your sunglasses. And then he got up and left. He, he didn't, he just made that statement and basically peeled out and took off. And I, and, and, and at that point when he said that, Bernie, I thought it was condescending. Look, I, I thought he was just kind of throwing gasoline on the fire, just like an angry young kid would do. You know, you just thought he was just being condescending. So that even made me more mad that he would even say that. I wasn't even thinking about the meaning of what he just said. I wasn't even thinking about, you know, breaking down what he just said to me. I was just so angry that, one, I wasn't playing, and then he had the nerve to come over there and, you know, uh, tell me I should be listening to country music instead of rap, and then uh, basically, you know, give me this condescending statement. So I was, I was kind of upset about it. I went home, talked to my parents. My, my dad told me, absolutely not, you're not transferring. You're staying there. This is the choice you made. You made this decision. We told you not to go there. This is the choice you made. You are not going. We're not signing on to it. We're not, we're not agreeing to it. You're staying at the University of Oklahoma. I don't care if you don't play another minute. You're going to get education, and you're going to get a job, and you're going to go from there. I don't care if you play basketball. I don't care if you make pro. I don't care. I don't care. But this is a choice you made, and you're going to stick with it. You don't just sign, and when things don't go well, you take off running. We don't do that. That's not what we do in the King household. So if you don't play another minute, you're going to finish at the University of Oklahoma one way or the other. So as you can see, my dad's about 6'5", about 250, so he was probably over 100 and some pounds bigger than me with hands like uh, – you know, hands like a shovel. So uh, you can imagine that I wasn't going, you know, I wasn't going to buck up against him and, and, and go against what he said. So I ended up staying. And stay, you did. And uh, the, uh, the rest is, is the stuff of legend and Norman and, and well beyond. You had uh, three, four year starters that, that departed. One guy that I got to ask you about here before we get to that, uh, that 87, 88 season, uh, Chew Kennedy, a guy that were you surprised that uh, maybe, uh, didn't uh, play uh, and make a living in the NBA? Well, you know, Chew, Chew in this league, in this era, would have been great, you know, because he's a tweener. You know, he would be great in this, in this era. But at the time he came up, you know, he wasn't a small forward. You know, uh, he wasn't – he was more power forward because he had back to the basket, but he wasn't height-wise power forward. So during that time when he came out, they didn't have a position for him. They looked at him as being a tweener. And back then, if you were a tweener, you didn't make the NBA. You had to go overseas, play somewhere. And, you know, she was about 6'4", six, 6'5 tops. And really, in that, in that generation was a guard. Would have had to play two guard, basically, combo. And he didn't have the ball handling skills to play that position because he was more back to the basket. And he didn't shoot threes or his outside jump shot wasn't what you expect out of a small forward at the time. When you look at the small forwards in that time, you know, Dominique, Larry Bird, I mean, you had, you know, you had some really, really good, you know, wing players that could actually not only attack the basket, but, you know, shoot from distance. And and Chu just didn't have those skill sets. But in today's game, oh, my goodness. I mean, he would have been – he he would be a major player in today's game. I mean, when you look at guys like, you know, Jay Crowder, you know, uh, Solomon Hill, you know, these guys who are tweeners that can play multiple positions, 
he would have been he would have been great in this era. The 87-88 season for uh, University of Oklahoma, just to put it in perspective, in 2007, Rivals.com talked about the top 10 teams in the 64-team NCAA field era. And uh, the team, which did everything but have the happy ending in, in the, uh, the 1988 final, was number 10 on that list. 35-4, and four, scored more than 100 points 20 times, more than 150 three times. Averaged almost 103 points a game. Uh, won both the Big East, uh, the Big East, the Big Eight regular season and tournament championships. Established a record with 486 steals and uh, had 26 double-digit wins. Won 12 games by 35 by 50. Uh, for a team that lost three four-year starters and began the season unranked, when did you realize that? We might be pretty good this year, and, and this might be a team that might even go further than last season, or maybe as far as any Oklahoma team has ever gone. Well, I, I think in the summer, I mean, um, when we were playing pickup games, I think we all realized that what what kind of talent we had because, you know, a lot of the talent we had, you got to remember, we had Harvey Grant, who was a Juco transfer, who had played the year before, so he was in his senior year. We had Ricky Grace, who was a Juco All-American, also would have been was a senior my junior year. And then they brought in Mookie Blaylock, who was, you know, one of the best steals uh, players in, the, in NCAA history. I mean, he's got some records for steals in a season, steals in a game. You throw him out there, then you throw myself, and then you have a complimentary wing player and a guy named Dave Seeger who could keep defenses honest and couldn't double you because you had such good outside shooting. So we had a little bit of everything. And we had – that team, that team, Bernie, we also had four JUCO, first JUCO team All-Americans on the bench who couldn't get any minutes. That's how deep we were. And when you look at that team and, and the things that we accomplished, I mean, you know, when you go back to the NCAA championship game, think about this. At the half, it was 50 to 50. There was 100 points scored between the two teams before, you know, at halftime. I mean, you watch a college game now, you'd be lucky to see if the score is like 32 to 28. You know, you don't see that kind of volume scoring anywhere. Um, teams don't play like that anymore. You know, even with the three-point line, you would think with the three-point line that there would be more scoring, and it's not. So that tells you how unique that team was and, and how, how talented it was as far as that we, we had five guys average double figures. You know, we had a sixth guy coming off the bench, I think, just missing double figures. So, uh, and Tubbs let us go, and we all played defense. We bought into – Defense, and when you have so many people that can score like we could, you know, you're not getting a lot of plays run for you. <laughs> it's not like let's That's come right. down and throw the ball in there, you know, to this guy, or let's run pick and roll with this guy. So you got to pick and choose how you're going to score. And the one way we all figured out how we're going to score and get touches is defensively. You know, trapping and pressing and and playing full court defense and getting after teams because the more you turn teams over, the more possessions you have. So the more possessions you have, the more opportunity everybody has the chance to score. So that's how Tubbs broke it down. Then a defense. And that's what happened. Yep. A, a, a team with uh, just amazing raw power, uh, endurance, uh, the conditioning level of the team. You had your five starters, all as you mentioned, at double figures, all averaging about 35 minutes a game. And uh, – and, and, and right, right from right, right from the, the outset, outset, one note that I found, you, you went over to Maui, and uh, you lined up against Virginia, the team 
uh, that uh, had knocked you out the year before. And uh, you, you played Virginia, and uh, the, the Virginia team that you were, you were up and comfortable lead. And uh, apparently Coach Tubbs said, this is ACC, pour it on. And you ended up with a 48-point win over a, a Virginia Cavalier team over there in Maui. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the teams that we ran the score up on was personal. And, um, you know, because their guys were talking trash and, and, you know, saying that, you know, we're a bunch of country boys. So a lot of times that we put that, we opened that can of whoop ass on people was because they were talking trash and they were talking trash to individual players. And so we just wanted to show you like, Hey, you know, when people, when you open up a newspaper, you see a team scored 152 and you're another college player, you say, they would never do that to us. They would never score 152 on us. You know, you, we would get that. And teams would want to, we were like everybody's Super Bowl, you know, because you see this team coming in, we're brash, our coach is brash. I mean, I, I, I've been in where we beat Kansas at, at Kansas and during a regular season game, we cut the nets down. And we hadn't even won the conference championship yet. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that we were doing. And <laughs> we were bad boys. Like, when you look at those, those videos of Miami Hurricanes and, and when they had the bad boy image, yep. we kind of patted ourselves football, basketball-wise, like Miami Hurricanes because we saw Miami come in and dismantle Oklahoma on a number of occasions in football. And we saw the brashness and, and how they did things and the camaraderie that they had. And we kind of – we did like basketball oh it was it was it was awesome it, it certainly was uh, awesome would be uh, would, would be a good one word description of uh, what that team accomplished over the course of the season you got to the ncaa tournament and uh, the pedal was squarely to the metal once again uh defeating auburn and uh, and louisville and uh, moving on you were the leading scorer of the ncaa tournament overall almost 26 points 25.8 uh, MVP of the Southeast Regional. You're also MVP of the Big Eight Tournament prior to that. And uh, that got you to the semifinal. And uh, a game where you matched up with uh, the number one team in the country at the time, Lute Olson's Arizona Wildcats, 35-2. and two. And uh, your memories about that game where things didn't start uh, so well, but a couple of adjustments if people didn't think Coach Tubbs can X and O a little bit. He did a little X and Oing with your defense there to get that game turned around, Stacy. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a good test for us because, you know, we, we've been tested. We had the hardest time to get to the Final Four, we thought. You know, the brackets that we had to play in the Southeast region. I mean, our first game in the Southeast region, um, uh, we barely we barely got, you know, we, I think it was Arkansas Little Rock or something. But we it was a 1-16 type of game, and, and we had to come back. Uh, from double digits to win that first round game. And then the trip to the final four, we had to play Roly Massimino's Villanova Wildcats. And we were down at halftime, I think, double digits. And it looked like we were going to lose that game. And we came back and made the adjustments to win. So we had been in those situations before. We were pumped for Arizona because we knew everybody thought Arizona was going to beat us. And uh, we kept hearing how great they were. And no one was really giving us our respect. So we went into that game with a little chip on our shoulders. Uh, of course, we'd like to beat them by 30. Um, but, you know, they're a great team. You couldn't take anything away from what they did. They had, you know, future NBA players on that team. So, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was an evenly matched team uh, game, I think. But I think the difference was was our defense. We just warmed down. I mean, Steve yeah. Kerr probably had his worst game as a college player. I mean, he could not get any shots to fall. Mookie basically was like human deodorant. I mean, they were he was on him the whole night, frustrated him. Uh, and, you know, Craig McMillan, their other guard, who was another light out, lights-out shooter, 
Uh, Ricky Grace just dismantled him. So our guards, I, I would say our guards won that game for us because they were able to neutralize their two best players. And then you had Sean Elliott. You know, Sean Elliott and myself, you know, we were, you know, two top juniors. So, you know, he, he, he really cared, and we knew he was going to get his because it was a tough matchup for us. But if, you, if we could shut down everybody else, which we did, uh, that was going to give us the best chance to win. Now, had both those, those shooters, Steve Kerr and McMillan, been able to get off a little bit, you know, who knows what that game would have been like. You know, would we have still made the adjustments defensively? Um, would we have gone into a zone? Um, would we have played yeah. differently against – you know, who knows? It went to, from the, uh, the man – you mentioned the defensive adjustment to go man to zone. And also, at one note there, your first uh, game, you did uh, have uh, some struggles there out of the gate. You, you got the wrong hyphenated school. Tennessee, Chattanooga, you said, Arkansas, a little – close yeah. enough. <laughs> Yeah, one of those hyphenated schools. All I know, they had one kid on there, Benny Green, a guard, and he gave a fit. And we we found ourselves down, you know, big to that team. And uh, we had to we we were fighting in the locker room with each other. Like we were, you know, we were we were. I mean, we were brothers on that team. We could actually say something to one another, and and no one take it personal. But we really motivated each other, and we, we held each other accountable. You know, we told our guards to stop gambling so much because we were, I was such a great shot blocker. Harvey Grant was such a great shot blocker. We covered up for a lot of mistakes in the back end. So if Mookie and, and Ricky and, you know, anybody else would gamble for steals and get out of position and those guards break you down and start coming to the rim, well, we were swatting it over to the, you know, swatting it out, and we're starting a fast break with it. So, but when you get to the NCAA tournament, and you're playing against good guards like, you know, Benny Green or Steve Kerr, they make adjustments as well. I mean, you block one or two of their shots, now they're starting to say, okay, they block, they block my shot, so now I'm going to get them to commit, and I'm going to drop it off to the big guy for a dunk. And that's what they started doing. So we started telling our guards at halftime, stop gambling so much, play straight up, and everybody guard their man. And if we do that, we'll come back and win. So that was the adjustment we made in the second half, and it, and it proved to be uh, uh, key. To the national championship game, as they call him, Danny and the Miracles with uh, Danny Manning and uh, the Kansas Jayhawks. Team, you've had two eight-point wins over during the Big Eight regular season. A lot was said about the fact that you had the Jayhawks and, you know, Rock Chuck Jayhawk in Kemper Arena. And, uh, yeah. And, and uh, just your, your thoughts as you think back on, on that epic national championship game. You already mentioned the fact, and I remember watching that game 50-50 at halftime and still noted, Stacy as maybe the greatest single half of basketball in the history of the NCAA tournament. Yeah, it was, it was big time, man. I mean, you know, I grew up, my dream was always to play in the final four, you know, and, and as a kid watching the final fours over the years, it was always in a dome, King dome, you know, Astrodome, or wherever the big venues were, that's where the national championship game has always been played Superdome, And so we, here we are, we get to like a centennial type thing. It was the 50th anniversary of the NCAA tournament, Kansas City is where everything started. So it was kind of, it was kind of the reason why it was in Kansas City, you know? Uh, and so no one knew Kansas was going to be there. You know, if Kansas is not there, then you're looking at Duke. Duke is playing, you know, Oklahoma in the national championship game. Kansas, I think, was a lower seed going into the tournament in general. And a lot of teams got beat. 
that got knocked out before Kansas actually got to them. Um, they ended up playing Kansas State, I think, for the trip to the Final Four, if I'm not mistaken. Kansas State had beat them. Uh, I think they might have split with them that year. But Kansas State had Mitch Richmond, Steve Henson. They had a very good team. And uh, we thought Kansas State would beat them, and they didn't. So now you get them in the Final Four. So you got us, Duke, uh, Arizona, and Kansas. They're three number one seeds and then, you know, one party crasher in Kansas. And, you know, so we, you know, when they beat Duke, we were like, oh, this is going to be easy. Now, we're, I mean, woo, we don't get, this is this will be the easiest national championship ever because we've already beat them. We've had success over the last couple of years with them. And, um, you know, so we just assumed it was going to be the same. And so knowing each other like we do, um, I think it made the game a little bit different, you know, because, you know, Larry, Brand, Larry Brown's a good coach, a great coach, especially college coach, and he made adjustments. And Kansas at that time when we played them, you know, the adjustment that they made really wasn't an adjustment. It was just other guys stepped up and played that didn't do it before. You know, you had contributions from guys that you didn't, weren't even on the scouting report. And when that happens, you know, Danny's going to get his 30. We always knew that. Danny was going to get 30. There was no way you could stop. There's no way you could stop Danny Manning. Nobody could. He was the Michael Jordan of college basketball at that time. Player of the year, you know, future first-round pick, um, number one pick. So we knew we couldn't stop him. But we shut down everybody else and made it very difficult because we knew Danny couldn't outscore three or four of us. You know, him against four, our top four scores, we're going to beat you. So that particular game – you know, we always say, you know, you know, bright lights, you know, bright lights bring out the best. And sometimes pressure bursts pipes. And so we just thought, you know, Kansas, the role players were going to were going to struggle in that in that environment. You had, you know, Scooter Berry played well. Uh, they had a walk on football player. And this is the one guy that sticks out of my mind over any of the other guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's Clint Normore. Clint Normore is right. a football player. Walk on. He came out there and gave them contributions. And uh, I think he had 10 points off the bench. And, you know, and their, their role players played well. You know, Chris Piper, who was just really a glue guy, you know, rebounder, tough defensive player. You know, not only was he a good defensive player, you know, but he got rebounds and, and you know, he's a good passer. And he really did all the little intangible things that helped teams win. He didn't get enough credit, but he played well. Uh, Milt Newton, who arguably was their second best player behind Danny Manning, uh, had his game, a uh, game out of his life. He had a couple of big shots that, you know, were NBA level type shots. You're like, wow, he's hitting shots. Like, this is, this is crazy. Um, these guys stepping up playing. But, you know, that game wasn't decided till <clears throat> probably about a minute, less than a minute left in the game. It could have went either way. And right. there was a key, there was a key foul call on a loose ball between me and Danny Manning. And um, from the officials point of view, from where he saw it, Ed Hightower, who's one of the greatest uh, college officials of all time, really, really, really good official. I always liked Ed, fair guy. From his point of view, you know, he thought I fouled Danny. But Danny really was the one who fouled me to get uh, an advantage on getting the loose basketball. Well, they called the foul on me. And so Danny got to go shoot, you know, two free throws in a one-point one game. So now you're making it a three-point game if he makes both free throws. And just to send him into the foul line in that situation, you know, that's one of those things you sit there and you scratch your head and go, why would you even make that call? You know, if anything, right. you know, uh, you know, just let him play. You know, let him play. If he got the ball, he didn't call the foul, so be it. Then we just have to defend. But, you know, he sent him to the foul line. And I, I remember talking to him on the thing, and I told him, I said, man, you just cost us a national championship. 
And I go, that that was the worst call I've ever seen. And then he told me, he said, hey, he goes, I might have missed it. I'm going to have to go back. And I'll give him to his credit. He said that. He might have missed it. But from his angle, it looked like I was the one, you know, pushing off on Danny Manning. And he said, you know, he goes, he goes, but hey, all I can say is you're a great player and you'll get those calls, you know, next year. And I'm thinking to myself, man, that is, I might not get to this point next year. What are you talking about? <laughs> Do you know how hard – I'm thinking to myself, you know how hard it is just to get to the Sweet 16, let alone get to the national championship, and you're telling me that? But I will give him credit, though, Bernie, because he, he came to one of our reunions to honor Coach Tubbs a few years ago. And he came up to me, and he said, he said, I know it's not going to change things, and I know it's not going to make you feel any better. But he said, you were right. That was a foul on him. You guys should have. You guys should have gotten possession of the ball, and uh, you, you should have went to the foul line. He said that, and when he said that, that kind of made me because I knew, you know. But to hear a guy, you know, kind of say that he he missed it, and he was man enough to say it, I was like, hey man, that's cool, man. It's all it's hey, it's all gravy, bro. I won three NBA championships, so I'm not worried about. It. I got a championship somewhere, so I'm not worried about. It. I would have. I would trade in one of my NBA championships for that college championship. I. Because we, we had such a great team, and we should have won. If we played Kansas ten times uh, that season, we beat them nine times. Yeah. Now, that's how good it was. How, how, how good your team was and how much, uh, how much confidence that you, you rightfully so that you had uh, in your team overall. Uh, the disappointment of that uh, national championship game, Stacy, uh, carryover effect to the next year. I mean, you know, 30 and 6 the following year. Uh, aforementioned, I had the, the timeline uh, skewed, but the, the Virginia team you beat by 48 in Maui turned out to be the team that uh, knocked you out uh, in the NCAA Sweet 16 to end your college career. Yeah. But uh, was there really a, a, a hangover effect coming from the heights that you had climbed and got almost all the way to the top of the mountain the year before? No, we, we felt like we had a good enough team to get back. You know, we, we felt like we had a good enough team to get back to the Final Four. Um, you know, we played some really good teams that year. We, you know, we beat, you know, UNLV and UNL at, at Vegas. Uh, we lost to the Michigan team in, in the championship of the Maui Classic, a close game out there, which we thought we should have won. And then Michigan went on to win a national championship. And we had an opportunity to play them in the Southeast region at Rupp Arena had we beat Virginia. Had we beat Virginia, we would have played uh, Michigan for the trip to the Final Four in the Southeast region. And we felt really good that we could beat them. Um, but you know, things, the way it worked out, um, I think everybody was hungry. You know, we all had the same mentality. It's obvious we only lost six games. So we had the same mindset. The problem was we had some unluck. We had some really unlucky situations happen. The first couple of minutes of the game, Mookie Blaylock got poked in the eye and got a scratch cornea and really right. was ineffective the rest of the game. I mean, he missed most of the first half because of the scratch cornea. And if you've ever had a scratch cornea, you know – how difficult it is to play uh, with light, you know, and, and he just was not the same. And we had to play some of our younger guards who were inexperienced at the time playing key minutes for us. And we just missed Mookie's leadership. We, we, you know, we were inside outside tandem and, you know, Mookie always had this knack of getting a key steal, uh, a key turnover at the right time to ignite us. And when you lose that guy, uh, you know, I'm the dynamite. He's, he's the match. Right. And when you don't have the match, the dynamite doesn't explode. And, and Virginia ran a boxing one on me. I mean, literally had four guys on me, you know, in front, back, side. And I still ended up scoring like 20-something points. But 
I, I couldn't do it by myself. I needed my partner with me. And, uh, you know, Mookie, you know, not being able to play and not being effective because of the scratch corner, it really cost, you know, cost us a chance to, to at least have an opportunity to get back to the final four. But, you know, that was a freak accident. And, um, you know, it's one of those things like you can't plan against, you can't plan for. It's something that happens in battle, you know, and, and uh, you just have to make the adjustments. I think, you know, we didn't make the adjustments because we didn't have, you know, Mookie played, me and Mookie played, you know, almost 40 minutes a game that year. And, um, you know, we didn't have the backups that we had the year before. We didn't have the, the, the guys that Coach Tubbs could trust to come out there and give us minutes. And especially at the point guard position, we had some younger guys who weren't really getting a lot of playing time, and we had to use our, our shooting guard to play point guard. And he wasn't a point guard. And, and uh, you know, in his defense, he wasn't a point guard. And it really hurt us getting into our offense. We didn't have a flow. Uh, we weren't getting any easy baskets in transition. Um, and that killed us because that's what kind of team we had. We were a pressing team. We were a team that trapped and turned, you know, turned you over to get easy baskets and frustrated you and got you to play fast. And if we can get you to play fast, then you're going to be playing out of characteristics because you're trying to match what we're doing. And I'll give Virginia credit. Their whole mindset, I think, them getting beat by over 50 points the year before, I think that gave them a, a little mindset of like, okay, we can't get out here and play up and down with this team. We got to make them play half court, zone them, boxing one on on their big guys, and that's what they did. Yeah, you were you were surrounded, you know, Batman without Robin. And uh, before we before we move on to uh, to the NBA and uh, and uh, your draft uh, with the Chicago Bulls, uh, as a uh, pretty big Pearl Jam fan who's followed them all around the country, and uh, actually authored a book. Would Mookie have been most likely to have uh, a rock band in Seattle to name themselves after him? Would he have even voted that at Oklahoma? <laughs> no, no, it was it was because you know, the whole the story is they they really loved that name. They were going to be named the Mookie Mookie yeah. Ten or something. I think that was going to be their name. Yeah, and uh, Mookie didn't want that. He, he didn't right. want that. Yeah. Yeah, he, he kind of nixed that idea because they had to ask him for that, That's you know, right. and he, he refused. To, he, he didn't want to do that. He wasn't that, Mookie wasn't that type of guy. He wasn't a guy that, you know, he, he didn't like the limelight um, in college. He didn't like that. He was very shy, and, and, you know, he was outgoing to his teammates, but, you know, to strangers and outside world, he was more introverted. He wasn't an in-your-face, uh, Gregorious type of guy. We were total opposites, you know, where he, you know, he's the shy one, I'm the one that lights up the room when you come in. I'm the one with the, the make you laugh, tell the jokes, loosen up everybody, and have a good time. Where Mookie was more reserved, you wouldn't even know he was in the room, like because he wouldn't say anything. But when he was around his teammates, you know, he jokes and laughs and has a good time. So, um, you know, we were just that's why I think it worked, you know, because I, I even to this day, yeah, even even to this day, I'll say Mookie was the best passer um, that I ever played with. Um, as far as knowing how to get the ball in scoring position and made it easier for you to score. Like every time he would throw me a pass, it would be a pass where all I had to do, I would catch it in rhythm. It was always a rhythm shot. You know, he's the best passer I play with. I mean, I play with some really good NBA yeah. passers, but Uki by far is the best passer I've ever played with. And uh, on to the NBA and uh, as a lottery pick, a prospective lottery pick, uh, as uh, pointed out in that position, you, you had uh, your agent, uh, David Falk, uh, there was going to be no workout necessary as a lottery pick uh, in terms of uh, going and, and uh, going through the, uh, the rigors to, to prepare for the NBA draft. 
But suffice it to say, Stacy, that's not how it worked out. Uh, there's a rather <laughs> uh, memorable workout. And uh, I guess uh, one of the things that we're going to learn from this story is that you couldn't pick David Corzine out of a police lineup. No, no, I sure couldn't because, you know, watching him on TV, you know, I, I kind of thought I knew what he looked like. But so I go to the Bulls workout, and as you just alluded to, you know, lottery picks don't work out. You just go there, you have a QA, uh, you know, answer questions, do a little physical work uh, as far as your times and stuff and vertical jump. Nothing really strenuous. And, you know, so um, I had not planned to work out here. And then when I got here, you know, it was almost expected for me to do some workout court work. And I was just kind of looking at him like, well, this, I didn't bring any shoes. I didn't bring any gear. And so they thought we got all that, yada, yada, with size and everything, da, da. So, um, and I said, well, I need to call my agent. And they were like, well, you don't need to call your agent. You know what? You know, we're not going to hurt you. You're not going to, you're not going to put you anything that's going to hurt you. You're going to, you know, hurt your, your draft status. We're not going to injure your ankles, your knees. We just want to see you do a little court work, some moves, whatever. So I'm like, so basically they challenged me and I, and I love, I'm one of those guys you challenge me. I'm going to show you. So I, I took it as a challenge. Like I didn't want to be soft to them. I didn't want to, to, for them to think that I don't like to play basketball because I love, I love basketball. I can play basketball anywhere, anytime, any place. And so I wanted to show them that, that I love the game. So I, I committed to it. So we get in there and we start doing some drills and we're doing just your basic drills, you know, three man weave up and down, you know, then we went into the post and, and um, so they said, hey, we're going to put a little resistance. You know, we're going to be able to put the pad on you, a little resistance. We're going to bring in a guy. He's going to – they didn't tell me who the guy was. They said, we're going to bring in a guy. Didn't say you're bringing anybody specific. They said, we're going to bring somebody to put a – give a little resistance to you, a little bit – you know, he'll be taller than you, but your size taller. We want to see you jump hooks. We want to see you, you know, power move to the basket. We just want to see, you know, what you can do with someone of your own size. So I'm like, all right, cool. So here comes this guy lumbering in. I'm thinking it's Dave Corzine. No big deal. I'm like, all right, but he's not as big as he doesn't look as big as he does on TV. I'm like, oh, he's kind of skinny. Like, damn, all these NBA big dudes look like him, but they are. I'm gonna kill him. So, so, so then he's holding the he's holding the bag and he's hitting me. Boom, boom, boom. And I'm, you know, they said, all right, we wanted two dribbles to the middle, drop step baseline. And Doug Collins was the coach at the time, and you had the great Tex Winter and Johnny Bach and all. You know, Jerry Krause was there. You know, the whole brass was there, and so. They're like, okay, they're giving me some commands. And so I'm doing them. And the guy's hitting me with the pads. I mean, like, hit me hard. You know, there, there's a difference between resistance and there's a difference between, like, sparring. So I felt like I was in a sparring match. And so I'm going to the basket with drop step, and he just hard. Boom. Knocks me to the floor. And so I go, I go, hey, man, like, you know, cut it out. Like, what, what is that all about, dude? Like, and then he basically told me to shut, shut the F up and play he, with the P. And so I looked at him like, okay, obviously this dude doesn't know I'll punch him in his face. Like he doesn't, I'm not soft like that. So if you think that's what you, you know, just because I look like Denzel Washington doesn't mean I'm soft. Okay. So, you know, the movie star looks there. So, so I, I don't want people to think that. So he, he, he calls me, I basically said, stop being a, the P word. And so I said, okay, <laughs> okay. So they brought this dude in here to see how tough I am. Like, All right, cool. We, we, I'm going to show him how tough I am. So he commenced to doing it again, bang, 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 you know, so they said, do the same move. So I did the same move, but this time I threw an elbow. I kind of hit him with the elbow and cleared him out the way and I dunked the ball and then he fell to the ground. You know, it makes this, it's like a fallen tree in the forest. He falls. I throw the ball on him and I said, now you get up with the P word. And so, <laughs> so he, 
and where I'm from, if you jump up that fast, I, I'm I'm getting into battle stance because I got to protect myself. You getting ready to get a two piece without the soda? So he jumps up, I jump up, I square up, he squares up, and then they rush in to break it up. And I, I'm like, let him go. I'm gonna beat his. I'm gonna beat his ass. Let him go. I'm gonna beat Corzine ass. Let him go. And so I'm yelling Corzine the whole time. No one's saying anything. Uh, Doug is laughing. You know, people are laughing, but I'm no one. I don't see what's funny. You know, so I thought this was all staged. Like they they wanted him to do this. Like you ever you ever seen the movie One on One with oh, Robbie yeah. Benson? Robbie Benson. Yep. Brought that big dude in. You know that thought it was like that kind of scenario. Let's bring the bully in to bully the young kid and see what he does, you know? So, and, you know, and you got to remember at that time, they were having a, pro- a problem with the Pistons with the physical play, you know, and that was during the height of the, the you know, kind of the start of the, the Bulls Piston rivalries with the fights and all that. And they were getting bullied. Their younger players were getting bullied, Scotty and, and Horace at that time. And they wanted people, they wanted some toughness. They wanted the athletes, toughness, some versatile players. So, so then I'm going to the locker room after they separate us, and I'm still wanting to fight Corzine. And so um, I'm trying to plot a way to get him. You know, I'm trying to plot a way to get him, like meet him outside his car or whatever. And so the assistant street coach, who was a little bit older than me at the time, he's like, man, you're a feisty one. Boy, you don't take any, you know, you don't take any shit. I'm like, nah, I don't. And he goes, we need guys like that. You know, we need guys like that on this we're playing the, the Pistons, and you know they're they're you know they do that all the time. We need guys that'll stand up for them. We hadn't had that kind of guy since Oakley left. And I said, well, I'm not Charles Oakley, you know, but I'm not no punk. I'm not gonna let anybody, you know, just you know bully me. That's just not gonna happen. And so we're walking to the thing, and I said, man, you better let Dave Corsini know this ain't over. And so, so he goes, Dave Corsini, Dave Corsini's not here. I'm like, what do you mean, Dave Corsini's not here? And he was out there with me just now. What are you talking about? He starts laughing, and then he starts laughing like everybody else is laughing. I'm like, okay, man, what in the hell is so funny? Like, why are you? Why is everybody laughing? He said, so you thought you were out there with Dave Corzine? I go, yeah. He goes, man, he goes, have you ever heard of Phil Jackson? And I knew nothing of Phil Jackson. Never heard of him before in my life, and I'm a, I consider myself kind of a basketball historian, but I didn't know who he was. I didn't know he played for the Knicks. Didn't know he was on the Knicks championship team. Didn't know any of that. Um, because in Oklahoma, we never got Knicks games. We didn't get the, we, you know, it was always Boston and Philadelphia. You know, I grew up watching, you know, 76ers in Boston playing all the time for, you know, a trip to the finals and then playing either Seattle or, you know, Washington. Cause we didn't get all the games that we get now on TV. You know, you just got the, got the champion Boston Celtics and whoever they were playing. So that's how I grew up watching that stuff. So I didn't know who the Knicks were. And, um, so he says, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's Phil Jackson. You see, he almost got into a fight with his sister. And, I'm, and I, right then and there, you know, I, I felt like, you know, I, like the sands of time when you had those little sand bottles and the sand goes, you know, that's what I felt like. Like all the energy just drained because now I feel like I, I said, man, they, they probably think I'm like this thug. Like I have no respect for people or coaches. And that's not the case. You know, I didn't know he was a coach. But then again, I told him, I said, hey, man, I'm like, hey, they should have told me. I said, if they would have told me, I would have approached it differently. But I thought he was a player, and I thought he was trying to hurt me, and I'm trying to get drafted and not get hurt before the draft. So I had to let him know. So they just started laughing. So I came back into the meeting with Jerry and, and the rest of the coaches, and they were, they were still laughing. And then I said, hey, I apologize. 
I didn't know that he was a coach and I just been informed that he was coaching. You know, I'll apologize to him when he comes or whatever. And I didn't know he was a coach. And then they all start laughing and, oh, we need guys like you. If you're still around, Doug Collins told me, if you're, if you're there at six, we got, we, he goes, if you're there at six, we doubt you'll be there. But if you're there at six, we're going to draft you. And I was like, I didn't think I was going to be six, but I'm like, oh, well, cool. You know, but I, I thought Doug was the coolest coach. I would have loved to play for Doug Collins. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, who knows what would have happened if Doug would have been coached. Because I, I think Doug, honestly, would have won at least two championships, you know, in that first run, two of the first three, you know, uh, because that was basically the team he put together. You know, Phil ended up coaching it. And sometimes, you know, as you know in this league, you know, a guy can get a team to a certain point and then someone else comes in and, and takes over and, and, you know, reaps the rewards of the other person's, you know, um, you know, hard work. You saw it in Golden State with Mark Jackson, you know, teaching Golden State, you know, teaching them the fundamentals and, and, and the discipline they need to be winners. And then you see Steve Kerr come along and take them to the next level where they're a dominant championship caliber team because all the foundation was set. And same thing with the Bulls. The foundation was set when Phil Jackson came in. Now all he has to do is come in there and build the house. And once he does the architect of the house, you know, you got everything that you need now. You come to the Bulls, you ended up uh, as the number six pick, one of uh, three first-round draft picks for the Bulls, along with B.J. Armstrong and Jeff Sanders that year. And uh, go on to, uh, well, you were on the dance floor early. Uh, you were dancing early for the last dance. You were there for the first three uh, yeah, dances. The first dance. yeah, there, you the were the first, first dance. dance. May, may I have this dance? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, for the uh, 1991, 92, and 93, uh, you made the all-rookie, uh, second-team all-rookie 1990, your rookie year. But uh, you had to make that adjustment. And I know that this is common. I've, I've talked to guys in other sports uh, that I've covered uh, from uh, being a, a scorer, obviously offensive focus at one level, uh, to being a role player and to be a successful role player at another level. What about that adjustment uh, for you, Stacey, as you look back in, t- in terms of uh, your tenure with the Bulls and, and, and being part of a really special group? Well, it, it's difficult, you know, at first, because like you said, you come from one situation where you're the man, and then you come on another team where, you know, they're a 50-win team before Stacey King ever comes on that team. The Bulls that year, remarkable story. I mean, you got a team that wins 50 games. They get bounced in the second round of the playoffs by the Knicks. They're a young, up-and-coming team with a lot of talent. They're able to get three first-round picks that summer to add to that 50-win team. Now, you don't see that ever happening anymore. You don't see a team who's already strong getting – two lottery picks and another first round pick all in the same draft to, to not only re retool reload, but to strengthen a team. Now you've got a whole team. You've got your starters and you've got these three kids coming in that will fit nicely in your rotation. And now you've got an eight, nine man rotation and you did it through the draft and, and the strong got stronger. You know, Michael Jordan's team got better and got better fast. You know, so – and then at, remember at that time, you know, Scotty and them were just completing their third year, I think, when we came in. So, you know, they now have experienced what it's like to be in playoffs and be in, you know, rivalry games and NBA life. They, you know, it took them three years to figure it out. So now you've got two, two, three kids coming in from college, two kids, B.J. Armstrong, who's one of the top point guards in the country at that time at the University of Iowa, and then you got – 
you know, Stacey King, uh, one of the top players in college at his position. And you got another kid, Jeff Sanders, who was a sleeper, you know, the, the, you know, kind of like a guy that, you know, hidden gym, no one knew anything about. And then he ends up being a first round pick. So you get three first round picks to a team who has won 50 game and who's on the rise. And that's kind of like you say, like, for instance, like the Denver Nuggets right now. You see how talented they are with that young team that they have, that young core group. Add three more first-round picks on that team to that team right now. That's kind of equivalent to what you were getting with the Bulls when they were drafting us. And uh, the success uh, story, obviously, that uh, that played out uh, first uh, had to get by and uh, be able to, to uh, climb the mountain and to slay that Detroit Dragon uh, your first year. Uh, losing in the uh, the Eastern Conference uh, Finals uh, in a uh, a game uh, legendary game in and of itself. A lot of people refer to it as the uh, the the Scotty Pippen the migraine game. Uh, but also, you, you had another key guy out uh, with the John Paxson uh, to injury. Yeah. More than short-handed, Stacey, in trying to overcome uh, Detroit, uh, the defending champions in that deciding game seven. Well, and, you know, a lot of people, you know, like I said, like you just said, you know, everybody looks at that game as Scottie Pippen being having a migraine headache, and that was the reason why we lost. No, that wasn't the reason why we lost. We lost because we were missing two starters, basically. And we had just, in game six, we just, you know, blew them out at, at home at the, uh, at the old stadium. And so we're going into a game seven confident. But, you know, knowing that John Paxton got hurt in game six and that we weren't going to have him, that, that was a huge blow to us because – you know, the one thing that Pax did that I don't think a lot of people gave him credit for was Pax is a good on-ball defender, tough, hard-nosed guy. Uh, he gave you floor spacing that made it really tough to double off of Michael from the guard position and because of his, his deadly shooting on the outside. So you take that away from you, and then you take probably arguably your second-best player. Scotty wasn't Scotty yet, but Scotty was a really good player. So you take him off your team. So two of your best players are off. And now you've got to play young guys, inexperienced guys in one of the biggest games of, you know, everyone's life. You know, the Eastern Conference Finals, a trip to the championship, you know, to play. And we were probably, honestly, had we not had those injuries, you know, who knows? You know, maybe we get past Detroit. You know, I mean, the healthy Scotty, because the next year we swept them. So if we have a healthy Scotty and a healthy John Paxson, you know, maybe that outcome's different. But unfortunately, as you know, Bernie, injuries happen, happen at the worst times sometimes. Um, and, you know, so you got to deal with them. Detroit was able to, to get there with a veteran team. They were a really good team and they were mentally tough. And I think that was the biggest, um, you know, that was the biggest hurdle for us was is to get over the, the, men, the mentality of them beating us and bullying us. And I think after that game, we lost. And I'm going to tell you a story, man. I don't know if you heard the story, but, but nope. you know, in that, lock, in that locker room that time, um, you know, we're all sitting there and Jerry Krause comes in and he's saying all what he has to say about the, you know, the, we lost, this can't happen again, this will never happen again, blah, blah, blah. And none of the guys really want to hear from the general manager at that time. Nobody, no one was listening. No one was, you know, acknowledging it. It was just like, all right, Jerry's just, you know, he's saying what he's got to say, just get out, you know, because we were still – hurt guys were crying in the locker room because it was devastating to us you know it was devastating the way we lost it was devastating that we lost to them and the way we lost so so we were all hurt and crushed and then you know I'll, I'll give Michael credit you know Michael you know stood up and uh you know basically it was like a lightning bolt through the room and he basically stood up this will never happen again we will not lose to this team ever again in the playoff series 
That's it. We're coming back next year. We're going to beat them. We're going to the finals. And he went down and on per every man and said, you know, what expectations were. We, we're going to be in the gym. We're all working out. We're going to get stronger. We're going to get mentally tougher. And, and he went, you know, I mean, literally, it was like somebody like your dad talking to you when you're a kid. You know, I'm yeah. one, we're two, he's here, two of the youngest guys in the, in the locker room. And he basically told us, you two, you know, you, we need you to grow up. We need you. We need you more than anything. We want you to get stronger. You better be in that weight room every day. Da, da, da. I mean, he went to Paxton. He went to Cartwright. He went to Horace and Scotty. He went down to every, every man. And he even said himself, you know, he, he called himself out. And I think, I mean, when you listen to that, it's like one of those uh, win one for the Gipper speeches. Everybody just gets motivated. Or when uh was Rocky, you know, let's go win. <laughs> you know, you know it's, you watch those Rocky movies and, and Mick is like, you know, let's go do it. And you get pumped up. It's like that. It's like that one of those moments. And and that was the turning point um, of the Bulls dynasty run. And we didn't lose after that. Carried over into the next year and uh, the mission mentality uh, translated into uh, beating the Lakers for that, that first uh, NBA championship. The, the, the second year uh, I would think is particularly near and dear to your heart uh, the uh, Portland series, game six, at the end of the third quarter, the Bulls are down 15, and some resolution maybe that it's going to go to a game seven. And uh, Phil did a little substituting. Uh, he kept Scotty on the court, but uh, also had uh, four of the guys that were mainly in reserve roles, uh, including yourself. And things changed rather quickly with, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, Stacy, Michael was in the ML car position of waving the towel on the bench. <laughs> The one thing about that is that Phil knew what our reserves could do. We, we've been in situations, you know, over the years where we've been behind and we were the boost that got us over to win games. He, he knew what we had. He saw in practice how competitive we were against the starters. You know, I mean, we're going toe-to-toe with Michael Jordan and Scotty every single day and we're winning, winning scrimmages. So he knew what he had. He knew that we were guys that were hungry. We were going to come off the bench. It didn't matter if we were down 20, 30. We were going to go out there and, 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 you know, do whatever we could to get back in the game. And the funny thing about that is was he, he basically – he'll never probably admit it because he's, he's, he's considered a great coach. But, you know, we all knew that he was giving up basically. You know, we were down – you know, at one point we were down 17, you know, before the end of the week. So basically he was like, okay – you know, his, in his mindset, it's like, okay, we're not going to come back and win. Let me put my young kids out there. I know they'll make a game of it. We'll save, you know, we'll save, you know, Michael for game seven. Uh, we're going to have a game seven in Chicago. So we'll save, you know, Bill Cartwright and those guys. And let's just put these young kids out there. We'll keep Scotty out there because that's one thing he always did with us is Scotty became the primary scorer when Michael would go out of the game. And so Scotty played well with us. You know, he really, I mean, when we would play with Scotty on the floor, uh, it was so much continuity, and it was so the flow of the offense was so much better. Um, ball movement, cuts, the passing, and Phil knew this was Scotty. That's why he had no problem putting Scotty out there uh, with us, even knowing that he's going to need Scotty in a game seven. It was like, you know what, I'm going to put Scotty out there, you know, just because I know Scotty will run the offense and we'll get good shots, and who knows. And sure enough, you know, the rest is history. We come back, and everybody in there, you know, contributed. Bobby Hansen hit, you know, some crucial shots. BJ hit some crucial shots. I hit some crucial shots. I mean, everybody contributed in that comeback. And the funny thing about it was, and you know, in the, and you watch the last dance and that's what's so funny, you know, they show those clips of that video 
And they don't really mention the guys who were in the game that brought us back. They made it look like Michael was the one who brought us back. And they're showing cuts of Michael. Right. You know, they're not showing kind of waving towels. They're kind of showing Michael, you know, celebrate a little bit, but out there in the end winning the game for us. And it looked like Michael won the game for us. But everybody who was at that game, who saw that game, knew that it was, uh, you know, we call ourselves, we call ourselves Navy SEALs back in the day. That was our bench name. And, uh, you know, we, we'd all go undetected. You know, we'd like sneak in someplace, all of a sudden you're down 12, we're up 12 because we, we brought that energy. And uh, we took pride in that. And, and that's the one thing, Bernie, I would say about being on a championship team. You have to have egos, leave the egos at the door. If you want to be successful and win championships in the NBA, uh, because we're all the skill set is super high. We all had basketball IQ. We're all, you know, we're all talented basketball players. In order to win a championship, everybody can't be the man. You 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 got to take a step back and don't let your pride and ego step in the way. And you have to be willing to do whatever it takes to win. And I'm a winner. I want to win championships. I don't I don't want to finish second. I don't want to not win because you know you go back and you start looking at who won the Super Bowl last year. You don't remember who finished second. You don't remember who was runner up. You always remember winners, and so I always want to win. It doesn't matter if we're playing checkers. Uh, it doesn't matter if we're playing video games, pool, ping pong, darts. And everybody on that team in those first three championship teams had that mentality that we all hate to lose. It wasn't just Michael, because you only hear Michael's stories. Michael hated to lose. Michael was such a competitor. We wouldn't have won those championships if everybody on that team didn't have that mentality. In Boston, too. You look at all the championships Larry Bird was part of. You know, Eric, you know Larry Bird gets a lot of the credit. You know, Larry Bird's just a great player, and he is a great player. But if, and he's a competitor, and he's a, he's a killer. But you got to be surrounded by killers. He was surrounded by killers, and that's why they were able to win. To be a killer – you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be around guys who are not willing to to fight and scratch and claw and bleed with you. You know, there's a lot of guys in the NBA right now who are super talented, but you know, they have that mentality but the guys around them don't, and that's why they'll never win. But when you put everybody on a team from 1 to 12 at that time that has that same mentality that, you know, I'm going to win at all costs, man, you got yourself a championship caliber team. Indeed, that single-minded focus that gets translated in your case, from Michael Jordan to the rest of the team, Larry Bird uh, to, to, the, uh, to the rest of the team. Uh, looking back to uh, just uh, the, whole, uh, the whole concept of you uh, going to the Bulls, and looking back, uh, you had uh, kind of a little bit of uh, an elaborate uh, ritual, pregame ritual, going back to your time at Oklahoma. Uh, some, some of the elements involved were a 12-year-old rabbit's foot. I don't know if you took that rabbit's foot with you, to the NBA, but you did have a, a, a ritual that involved uh, rubbing a Michael Jordan poster in your room in Oklahoma for good luck, and uh, kind of an intriguing uh, story as to how that translated into you suddenly being around not a Michael Jordan poster, but the real Michael Jordan. Please stand up. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of ironic because um, not in, in a million years, I never thought I would be playing with Michael. I always thought I'd probably be playing against him um, because, you know, with them winning 50 games, you, you never thought you'd be seeing that kind of team in the lottery. But uh, they positioned themselves with a trade for uh, Orlando Woolrich with uh, the New Jersey Nets, which was unprotected pick, which turned out to be the sixth pick in the, in the lottery in the 89 draft. So, Every every game, because I was a big Michael Jordan fan when he came in the NBA, because he just took the NBA by storm. 
I mean, kind of very similar to like how kids look at, you know, some of the stars like LeBron James now, you know, that they, they see LeBron James in the NBA and they're in high school or, or you know, first couple of years in college and they idolize that kind of guy. So it was the same thing for us in college, you know, when Michael Jordan, you know, just basically took the NBA by storm, we all became Michael Jordan fans. I was a Michael Jordan fan in North Carolina, but I was an even bigger fan when I saw what he did in the NBA because he just exploded. So I used to have posters of MJ, you know, kind of like a groupie per se um, in my apartment, in my apartment bedroom. Like, you know, I had posters of him in the dunk contest when he was dunking with the, I think it was Indianapolis where he had the gold chain on and he was doing the, uh, doing uh, the kiss the rim dunk. And so I really, I really idolized MJ, you know, so I always felt like, when I touched his poster before I'd go to a game, I'd leave my room and, and go to the arena. I would always, t- uh, you know, just swipe at one of the posters. And it would just be my way of him bringing me some luck that maybe I can go out there and drop 30 on somebody like he's doing in the NBA. <laughs> and it worked. And uh, I'm very superstitious, man. Um, you know, people tell people who really know me, my close friends, I'm very superstitious, man. If I see a black cat, uh, I don't care if I'm going to be late for something. I'm going to go the opposite direction. I don't walk under ladders. Uh, you know, I don't go outside when it's thundering. I'm just very superstitious. And, um, you know, when you get into a routine, athletes are like this. When they when they get into routines that work for them and they see that it works, they stick to it. You know, if they eat pregame meals, a certain pregame meal, and they, they scored 30 points or threw, you know, four touchdowns or, or whatever they did in their in their athletic feet, they stick to that. And if that means eating eggs and bacon every day before the game, that's what they're going to do because it worked for them. So touching that poster every every game before I go out play at the University of Oklahoma, and I would drop thirty, you know, forty. I mean, I would I would have great games, and so I attributed it to Michael Jordan poster and his luck. So I was going to take the poster with me if I would have went to say Charlotte or you know anywhere else besides Chicago. I would have taken that poster with me because I, I would have attributed it as being good luck and hopefully it would bring me good luck in the NBA. And just to my luck, the basketball gods. You know, they they positioned they positioned it to for me to go play in Chicago next to Michael Jordan. And I was like ecstatic because all my all my teammates were like, oh my God, man, when you get up there, you don't even got to take the poster anymore, man. Take the posters down, you're gonna be able to touch him. And I'm like, you know, I'm a kid, you know, I'm you know 21 years old. I'm like, you're right. I don't need the posters. I got him. He's gonna be on my team. He's gonna be in my locker room. I can do it. I can touch him every game. What? So how cool is that? You know, and everybody was all excited. <laughs> Yeah, just like little groupies, man. We were all we were so excited. All my teammates were excited about it. So my first preseason game, uh, MJ's locker was across from mine. So all the veterans were kind of away from the younger players. So I was closer to the shower. They always had us closer to the shower, the bathroom, uh, which is not a good place to be if you're a rookie. Um, but his was across the way uh, by the door as you're walking out to go to the old stadium, to go up the stairs to go to the old stadium. So MJ's getting rest. He's always the last one. He never went out pregame shot. Um, he always was watching film. He was always studying, um, you know, game tape of the opponents. He was reading scouting reports, uh, getting treatment. He never went out and, and really shot. I can count on one hand how many times Michael Jordan went out and shot pregame. Um, he just never did. And um, so this particular time, you know, my first encounter, I had, I'd already met MJ. I'd, I'd already, this is not my first encounter with Michael Jordan, you know, my first preseason game. I had already met Michael Jordan early in the summer when he opened up one of his Jumpman stores in North Carolina. I flew down, signed autographs and stuff when I was, uh, when I was selected by the Bulls. So he had, he flew me down there and, 
I did a autograph signing session and I got to hang out with him all day. He was really cool. Like really just an awesome dude. I'm like, man, this is, this is really cool. Not only is he a great basketball player, he's going to be a cool teammate. So, <laughs> so now we fast forward to the preseason game. I'm not even telling anybody about the touching of the post or anything during, you know, during preseason practices. I'm kind of keeping that to myself because as a rookie, that's the last thing on your mind about, you know, touching Michael Jordan for luck. You know, you're trying to you're trying to impress coaches, your teammates. You're focusing on, you know, how you can fit into this this you know this really good basketball team. So, never crossed my mind not one time. But habit is forming, you know, because it's game time now. It's the first preseason game, and I'm hyped. It's at Chicago Stadium, and my routine before every game is to touch the poster. So, you know, there I see Michael Jordan over there. He's got his he's got his North Carolina because he always wore his North Carolina shorts underneath his game shorts. And so he's, he's getting dressed. He's literally getting dressed. He's got his shirt off, and he's got his North Carolina shorts on. He's getting ready to you know, pull up his, uh, his uh, game shorts and get ready. And so as I'm walking out, I'm thinking to myself, I'm hesitating, though, Bernie, because I'm like, man, should I do it? Yes, no, no. Will he, will he get mad if I do it? Will it come off weird? You know, I'm thinking all this. It's going like 100 miles a minute in my head. And finally, I said, damn, what the hell? Because you know what? I need to have a good game tonight, and <clears throat> I don't have my poster anymore, and Michael's right there, and I'm just going to rub him, and I'm going outside. So I, I, I start like a, I'm like, a, I'm like a, a tiger stalking the prey. Like, I'm, I'm creeping. You know, I'm not walking normally. I'm creeping like I'm going to pounce on the guy. And uh, so he has his back to me, and the reporters or some reporters are in there, whatever. And so – I, I take my I take my my left hand and I put it on his shoulder like you know how you would say hey have a good game you know that kind of thing so I kind of try to play it off like that <laughs> and I just rub down from his shoulder to his back whoop like a swipe like Mr Miyagi hands on you know wax on wax off. he gave me the look man I'll never forget that man the, the look he gave me it, it's hilarious now but the look he gave me <clears throat> was like one of those looks like you know. Don't you ever do that again? And he flat out told me. He said, "He said, hey, Rook, oh, no, 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 don't, don't overdo that again." And I, I said to him, "I said, listen, man, I had a poster of you, man. You brought me good luck." He said, "Go get the poster, <laughs> put the poster back up." <laughs> so, I, that was my once and only time doing my, you know, doing my superstition with MJ, and um, and never did it again. I just yeah. took it, took advantage that I was playing with the guy. So that was luck enough for me right there. And absolutely. No, no reason to resurrect the post. You didn't have to bring anything back from uh, Oklahoma nah, at that point. Nah, <laughs> no, nah, yeah, the real nah. thing. <laughs> the real thing. The real thing, but just don't touch him. <laughs> That's right. Oh, what a what a great story. Absolutely. That's just, I look back on it, yeah. it, it came up as a little creepy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess it was borderline to MJ at the time. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't know about yeah. this rookie. Yeah. yeah, I don't know about this guy from Oklahoma. You know, yeah. you know that, that movie. You know, I don't know. I, you know, that movie with the officer and the gentleman with Lou Gossett. You know, was telling the kid, uh, one of uh, Mayo's friends from Oklahoma. He said, "I don't know what's 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 in Oklahoma. I don't think I know from Oklahoma. You know the line for that one. I know the line so. from there. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that uh, Ben Affleck and." In, uh, in Goodwill Hunting, you were immediately suspect yeah. at that point. You yeah, suspect exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah with MJ. Yeah. But it worked out. It worked out good, man. And uh, I had a pretty good preseason game. So, yep. Uh, so my theory worked. It 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 indeed it it, it paid off. And uh, of course the the recent uh, attention and uh, and and re- resurgence of uh, the whole. 
uh, Chicago Bulls, uh, the, the the dynasty, the MJ dynasty, with the Last Dance and uh, the Last Dance, which got uh, it got uh, moved up uh, be- with the the pandemic. I guess we went from Tiger King. You talk about stalking like a tiger. We went from Tiger King to the Last Dance. You you <laughs> you, you would take having been part of that, uh, Stacy, as as part of the first three championship teams uh, about uh, the Last Dance and and how this phenomenon became revisited. I mean, it was, it was what everybody talked about for the entire run of that program. Uh, was it, was it accurate uh, uh, in, in terms of the uh, portrayal overall and how it was presented? I know you're on record as saying that uh, the Jordan rules, the book that was written by Sam Smith, you're on record as saying that that was a work of fiction. I think you were quoted, but what about the last dance as a documentary, uh, your take on that and how it was received by you and your family, I'm sure, sitting down to watch it and having your kids have a chance to uh, to revisit that time. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was awesome. You know, it was um, an opportunity for Bulls fans to, you know, recollect on how great these teams actually were, you know, because, you know, they have past few years, you know, the team has struggled and they haven't really had a lot to get excited about. And sometimes you forget how good that Chicago teams were in those two different three-peats. Um, you know, some of it, a lot of it, you know, I tell people, you know, it's just like, you know, reading a, a novel, you know, and, and some of it in there depicts the truth and some of it's a little bit, you know, a little bit, uh, per se, watered down a little bit. And, um, oh, and just being a person who was in it, you know, you got to remember, this is Michael Jordan's view. It's not like everybody's view. You know, right. it's, it's Michael exactly. Jordan's view. Uh, this is what he, how he interpret things. Um, played out, but I'm sure if you, I'm sure if you ask a lot of the teammates, um, I'm sure they'd have some different. I know Horace Grant had some had some things to say about it. Scotty wasn't really happy with the way he was depicted in it, so I'm sure I'm sure it didn't it wasn't pleasing to all you know that played with MJ. But at the same time, you know um, it was fun to watch. It was fun for for fans to watch to remember that great team. And the only thing I, I wish they would have done differently, and, and you know, they, they've never given Jerry Krause his, his, his true respect and, and his due. You know, they, they depict him as, you know, being, you know, this, this clown figure, this guy, you know, this guy that really, you know, was just made fun of all the time. And, and it's really sad, too, because he's not here to defend himself. You know, his family had to watch that. You know, people that are close to him had to watch that. And, you know, I'll go on record and I'll say it to anybody's face, that man should go down as one of the greatest general managers of all time. If he was Jerry West um, in that stature, he would he would have statues all over the place. And Jerry West is considered the greatest. But uh, Red Arbeck would be considered one of the greatest guys. Um, you know, Pat Riley, uh, when he's done, will be right up there as considered one of the, the best executives. And Jerry Krause should have his name right up there with those guys. I mean, think about this, Bernie, to put two different three-peat teams together, completely different rosters. It wasn't like you had the same core group for six titles. You had two separate teams. And to do that within a, a year and a half, two-year span – is amazing in itself. And, and for this man to put a team together, he built his team through the draft. Uh, he didn't go out and go get other superstar players. All his, all his homegrown talent was drafted. All his key pieces on both those championship teams were drafted. And, that's, and, and to draft those type of players, you have to have great scouting. 
You have to know talent. You have to know, you know, if these players can fit into what you're doing. And the and the and the tough, difficult decision to fire Doug Collins to see that Phil Jackson was the guy who could take you to the next level. I mean, he was vilified for that. You know, Doug Collins was very successful here in Chicago. He, he rebuilt the team, and I, and I, I said this, you know, we were talking about it earlier. You know, he doesn't get enough credit for, you know, being the guy who put these pieces in, in place and got Michael, you know, and, and Scotty and Horace to, to uh, be able to play together as a unit. You know, he doesn't get enough credit. But Jerry Krause, I felt the way they depicted him in that was just totally wrong. You know, MJ has been proven to hold grudges. And I love MJ, but MJ's been, you know, he's 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 been he's been known to hold grudges uh, on the vindictive side, and you know, at some point, you, in my opinion, you have to let it go. You have to let it go, man. You can't have you can't have malice or hatred in your heart, man. As a human, this is what's wrong with the country today. You know, there's too many people have that in their heart and and you know you, you got to let it go you got to let it go man you want to you know that's over and done with give that man his respect the man's not here the man should you know be in the hall of fame he should have been in the hall of fame before he passed away and that's sad that the nba didn't do that but again you know the way he was depicted was that's the one thing i can honestly say that i did not like and you know i thought it was wrong and um you know i i'll, I'll defend jerry you know, to my dying day, the man knew basketball. The man had the man. You know, he ate, slept, and drank basketball. If if you could have a gym rat for a player, he would be a gym rat as an executive. I mean, he he found guys, man. That I mean, he found Scottie Pippen. He made the trade. You know, he made the trade to get Scottie from Seattle to here. Uh, he found Charles Oakley. Uh, Horace Grant. I mean, you go down the line. He brought in, you know, a guy like Steve Kerr, who wasn't really playing a lot and, and was a key contributor to to the Bulls' second three-peat. You know, um, you know, Tony Kukoc found him in Europe, you know, as a 16, 16 15-year-old kid. So, you know, there's so many things that he did that helped this team win championships and put us in there. And I know – you know, I know personally Jerry can rub people the wrong way, especially the players, because Jerry sometimes, you know, got in his own way, you know, whereas he, he wanted more credit than what he was given. And I can understand that. But, you know, Jerry West, you watch Jerry West, what separates Jerry West from a lot of the executives. And Pat Riley now, too, you watch it with Pat Riley. They're not out in the front trying to get, you know, the, the accolades. They're not out front trying to get pats on the back. They know what they're doing. They know that they put a good product on the floor, that they're responsible for this team's success. But they sit in the background. They sit, in, you know, with their sunglasses on and they're drinking, you know, drinking fruity drinks and sand in their toes. Let the players get all the accolades. Let the coaches get the accolades. And I, and I think Jerry, Jerry, that was Jerry's downfall, that he didn't, he didn't feel like he was being appreciated. And I think a lot of that, you know, caused a lot of his, you know, his problems between him and Michael. And then, then again, on the real side, you know, now you see it more with the players. The players are empowered in this generation of players. They're, they're making decisions. They're telling you who they want to play with. If you don't do this, I'm leaving. You know, they have more power, per se, than when we did coming up. Organizations had the power. You know, Michael Jordan couldn't walk into Jerry Krause and say, go get this player, go get this player. Now, Michael Jordan told Jerry he wanted, he wants to play with Walter Davis when Walter Davis was still playing in Denver and when we had a spot on our team for him, and Jerry refused to go get him because he felt like Walter Davis was not a good player but, um, you know, just kind of past his prime at the time for what we were trying to do. 
you know, we needed, you know, Jerry's eyes, we needed more athleticism at the, at, at the key positions as far as the reserves were concerned. And he didn't think that, he didn't probably think that Walter Davis would accept a, a diminished role. You know, a guy coming from starting, playing 30, 35 plus minutes to coming on a team where he's going to be playing behind Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, where there might not be any minutes. So, you know, that's why I think Jerry didn't go make that move. And uh, that didn't sit well with Michael. But Michael didn't have the power like LeBron James has and, and uh, some of these superstars of the day because that's not how the players were, were brought up. You know, when you come up from high school, your coach is the boss. You follow, you do the instructions that the coach asks you to do. You go to college, Michael played for one of the greatest college coaches in the, in the game, you know, Dean Smith. Dean Smith was the only one that could hold Michael under 20 points, you know, and that's, that's real. Right. Harnished <laughs> right. him. We might have seen Michael Jordan do in college what we've seen him do in the pro level if they would have turned him loose. So that shows you that guys are used to discipline and structure during that era. And not saying these kids are these kids today are not like that, but these kids talk nowadays, Bernie. They're friends. They go out on vacation together. They hang out. You know, they do a lot of stuff together out, outside of basketball in the summertime. When we play, do you think Larry Bird called Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson and said, hey, man, come on over here and let's go work out together? No, because they were trying to beat each other's heads in. They, yep. they didn't want to work with you. I don't want you to see what I'm working on. I don't want you to see what I'm working on for this season so you'll have a counter for it. You know what I'm saying? So guys weren't friendly like that. We didn't, we didn't get along with um, former, you know, with other, other team stars or other team's players. I mean, I, guys I went to school with at Oklahoma who I was super tight. We were brothers. Man, I had to act like I didn't know you once we got to the pros. I mean, because that's just the way it was. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't fraternize with the opposing team. You know, it just wasn't. And when I played for Pat Riley, Pat Riley's first year in Miami, you know, Pat Riley instituted a rule: you couldn't talk to anybody from the other team before the game or after the game. If he saw you talking to someone, you know, while you're out there warming up, and you're like, "Hey, Mookie, what's going on, man? How's you know, how's you know, how's the family?" But man, you're you're getting fined like a thousand dollars. Ain't nobody want to get fined a thousand dollars for saying hello. That's the most expensive hello I've ever seen. So I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely, complete, completely different atmosphere. And, and uh, you mentioned about uh, Jerry Krause and deserving of of all of those accolades. Um, is with your opinion, your informed opinion? We had Robert Parrish on, who was there at the end of the dynasty, similar role to what you had early in the dynasty. Uh, do you think that this team? If they had stayed together, if, if there wasn't that commitment to break the band up, could have won another championship or two uh, with a little fine tuning in that core group. I mean, what, what did you think back, Stacy, about how it how it ended and how it really just blew up after that last championship after that? last? Well, you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, just knowing Jerry Krause's mentality and having conversations with him as a player, watching, you know, watching the Celtics get old, you know, seeing Larry Bird go through the injury, the back injury, and Kevin McHale, you know, the foot injuries, and, and Robert Parrish, you know, getting older too. The one thing Jerry always said is that, you know, he would never want a championship team that he has put together to end up like that. He doesn't want to go out like that. And so that was his biggest thing. You know, it was like even if, you're out, even if he was out on top and he won a championship at the end and he felt like the team was getting older – and uh, they needed to go in another direction. He was not going to hesitate to break that team up. And I think, but I think what really sped it all up was his relationship with Phil Jackson. 
And yep. I think, you know, had he had a better relationship with Phil Jackson, um, because Phil Phil was the players' coach. Phil always rode with the players. And if Michael if Michael was feeling a certain way, Phil felt the same way. If Scotty was feeling the same way, you know, Phil defended Scotty over Jerry. And so it came to the point um, where, you know, Phil in Jerry's eyes, you know, you owe me. You basically owe me. I gave you an opportunity that no no other NBA coach was going to give you. I brought you to the NBA when you were coaching in the Continental Basketball Association in Albany. And you were never, he, you know, Phil Jackson, who knows? Who knows? But the way, the reputation that Phil had back in the day, it kind of, it kind of, it kind of feels like he might not have been a, a head coach in the NBA because he didn't have a lot of friends. You know, a lot of people didn't like Phil. And so um doesn't mean he wasn't a good coach. It's just that people weren't going to give him an opportunity based on how he was as a player, outspoken guy, you know, the, you know, radical guys, you know, the, the drugs and all the stuff that went on in his book, the Maverick, I think that's what it was called. Um, you know, I didn't sit well with people. So um, people probably thought he was a risk, but Jerry saw something in him and brought him on the staff and, and made him assistant coach under Doug Collins and, and took the chance and, you know, put his neck out on the line basically and gave him the head coaching job. And I think Jerry felt like Phil should be more appreciative. Phil should be more on his side compared to the player side. But you got to understand one thing. Phil was a player. He wasn't he wasn't always a coach. He was a player. So he understands what players feel. He understands what's going on in the player's mind. He understands the frustration players have with management. So therefore, he's going to be closer to players than he is to management. And that was a problem. And then I think, you know, as their relationship started off good, but as we started winning, um, I think, you know, Jerry felt like Phil was getting way too much credit for the for the team's success and management wasn't getting you know, he wasn't getting the, the, the accolades as well. And Michael Jordan, you know, Michael Jordan doesn't like you. Almost everybody in America doesn't like you. <laughs> it's, just, I mean, it's, just, it's just the way it is. It, Michael, because Michael has that kind of polarizing personality. Everybody loves Michael. You know, the Gatorade commercial, Sometimes I Dream, He Is Me, you know, uh, Haynes commercial, McDonald's. He, you know, my, and Michael comes across as a good, you know, good all-American guy. And so he gravitates to all everybody. I mean, he crosses every barrier, you know. He can get into anybody's household, you know, black, white, blue, green, yellow. It doesn't matter. It's like, it's like you know, uh, Bill Cosby when the Cosby show was there and he had his show when it was at the height of its, you know, height of its, uh, his television career. You know, Bill Cosby crossed many lines. He got into many people's homes because of his wholesome, you know, his wholesome way, the pudding, the jello pudding, um, and the way he carried himself. Now, this is before all the other stuff that happened later on in his life, but before that, he was a well-respected person. People trusted Bill Cosby. Whatever Bill Cosby said, you know, people went along with it because he, he, they just felt like he was that kind of guy. Michael's the same way. You know, Muhammad Ali, you know, at, you know after, you know, after all the, the stuff that happened in the 60s, Muhammad Ali became that kind of guy, too. That's what made him so iconic because he crossed so many lines and so many people loved and, 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 and really, like, loved him to death. So, you know, Michael's that kind of guy. And so when Michael didn't like Jerry and he would make snot, you saw, you saw him last dance, how right. he would say things, to Jerry, you know, and make fun of him. And, 
people started seeing that. That was in the papers here in Chicago during the time. It was in the news, and people saw that. So fans started, you know, kind of piling in on it, you know, and it kind of, to be honest with you, Bernie, I mean, we talk about today's era, you know, uh, the bullying, you know, the, the uh, social, you know, social bullying, the uh, social media bullying and stuff like that that these kids go through. It was kind of like that because everybody kind of piled in on Jerry. They started making fun of his, his, his short stature, his weight. You know, he had the nickname Crumbs Krause, which, you know, um, you know, that was, that was kind of, that was, that was kind of hurting, hurtful to him as well. And, you know, they just, people just turned on him when he would go in the, in, at the old stadium and we'd have some, some kind of event honoring somebody, someone's retirement or, or some honor, he would get booed by the fans when they called his name. You know, if they put his face up on the, on the, on the jumbotron, he would get booed by everybody in the arena. And, and I don't care how tough you are. I don't care you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of mental toughness you have, man, that's got to affect you some way that you're not like, because that means if you're getting booed by 24, 25,000 in the arena, I can only imagine what it's like when you go to the grocery store to go grab some milk and eggs and people see you out in the store. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it, yep. it, it's a good feeling, man. And so, you know, Jerry, you know, Jerry was in my, Jerry's a great dude. I got nothing bad to say about Jerry, man. I got nothing but the highest respect for Jerry. He was always honest with me and always straightforward with me. And uh, I, I remember, you know, when I wanted to be traded after MJ went to go play baseball and the team was kind of breaking up, Scott Williams, you know, signed a free agent deal in Philadelphia. Horace went to Orlando. So the team was kind of breaking up and I wanted to be traded. You know, I wanted the opportunity to start. You know, I, I played this role. You know, I helped, helped be on a team to win three championships. I was a good soldier, never, never really complained. Just as long as we were winning, I was happy being in my role. But now is the time I'm seeing all these other guys getting paid. So now it's my time. I want to go. I want to be a starter to show people I'm a starter in this league. And I asked Jerry to, and Phil to be traded. They they were totally against it. They tried to talk me out of it. Jerry Jerry called me at least 20 times, telling me to change my mind. And you know David Fox, a powerful guy, and he was my agent at the time. Agent, yep. And, and he can move mountains. <laughs> I mean, he, at that time he can move mountains. And you know he was able to work out a trade you know, to Minnesota to a place he thought I could automatically go in and, and play right away. And that's what I wanted. I didn't really care if they were, you know, even though I like to win and I, and I know I hate losing, I just wanted an opportunity. I didn't care if Minnesota was 0-82 the year before. I just wanted to go somewhere where I could play and, and start, you know, start really trying to, you know, get my career where I thought it should be and where I think it could go. So, you know, he made a trade with uh, Minnesota for Luke Longley. And, uh, you know, I, I was I was in heaven there. I, I loved it. I loved it. I, I started from the very first day I got there, uh, put up some numbers as NBA player of the week a few times there, and I was really feeling good about myself. And, and, uh, and, and I really appreciate Jerry because he didn't have to do that. You know, even, even, even at the very end, even when they were winning, he said, you know, I wish you'd still be here. You know, and that really made me feel good that, you know, he, he thought that highly of me. Even when they were still, you know, when they were winning the championships, you know, he would, he would say that. And he said, I just wish you were still here to experience this. You, you should have be here. And I was like, I always appreciated that. I mentioned about uh, the trade and, and moving on at that point uh, to Minnesota. Uh, also, at, uh, at later with Pat Riley in Miami, uh, finished up in the NBA, the Celtics, and the Mavericks. But uh, not finished in terms of your basketball career. Uh, you became – uh, inter, inter, uh, international man of uh, mystery, if you will, uh, in terms of uh, some of the stops that you made, not only 
uh, in the CBA at places like Grand Rapids and, and Sioux Falls, but you had a plan, a chance to uh, to play overseas, Stacy. About the experience of uh, uh, the American, uh, the import in places like Argentina and Turkey, where you spent some time. You know what? It, I, I'm all about experience. You know, I mean, I studied French in in high school, and I always wanted to. You know, at the end of my career. I always wanted to go play abroad just to, to experience what it's like living overseas, to see, you know, some of the, the iconic things that they have to offer, you know, the history, castles, museums, you know, um, churches, you know, I always wanted to do that. And it gave me an opportunity to do that. Um, you know, it's one of those things that you say on your bucket list you want to do once, but I don't know if I would ever do it twice, you know, because what happens when you go overseas as, a, as an NBA player? You're so spoiled. We're so spoiled in the NBA with the way we travel, uh, the five-star hotels that we stay at, all the things that you get, the perks you get as an NBA player. See, if I would have went overseas as a college player, my attitude would have been totally my, – my whole mindset would have been totally different because I would have been like, oh, my God, this is awesome. You know, this is, this is, this is pro basketball at its best. You know, um, I wouldn't have thought anything of the way they travel. I wouldn't have thought anything with the way they practice over there. I wouldn't have thought because I would have been new to that. I would have been coming from college and that would have been my first, you know, experience as a pro. And then I would have probably thought this is what all pros do. They practice two, three times a day. You know, they, 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 they play once a week. You know, I, I, I would have thought that's what everybody does, but to go to the NBA and see how the NBA is and, and, and how you travel and how you're treated. Um, it was, it was a culture shock for me. It was like, you know, I mean, I, I embraced the situation, and and but it wasn't it wasn't something that I would ever do again. You know, I would never I, I would never do that again. I mean, it was it was fun. You know, with having some Americans on your team, but you know, the language was a um, you know the language was a uh, was a barrier. Um, you know, just the the culture, how they do things. You know, like NBA, you practice, you practice every day. You go from you know ten o'clock to. 12, 12, 1 o'clock. And then you're in there getting treatments. You're hanging around the facility with the players playing cards or video games or whatever. There's such a camaraderie in the NBA. Whereas when you go overseas, man, you're practicing three times a day and you're doing practices that don't even – don't even make sense. Like they're not even basketball related. Like, you know, I remember my first, my first week in Turkey, they, you know, they come waking me up at six o'clock in the morning talking about we're getting ready to go running, you know, and I'm like running. Like, what are you talking about? You know? So, so we go out on this steeplechase, like this track with the head, like steeplechase where you're, you're jumping over, you're jumping over like, you know, um, like what horses jump over, you know, those little, those little things when, uh, uh, equestrians when they jump over the little, the little thing, the little, um, um, ramp thing. Right. And then there's water there and you're running through water. You're going underneath, going underneath like things like you're a Navy seal. <laughs> it's like, what the, I'm like, what is, what does this got to do with basketball? You know, it's like, and then you're playing soccer, you know, they got you playing soccer and it's like, okay, now listen, wait, this is, this is crazy. Like, okay, if you want to be in the gym for three hours, we run suicides. I'm with that. You want to do anything basketball related. I'm with that. But all this other stuff that, you know, you go out here and tear your ACL up trying to play soccer with a bunch of people that, you know, those kids, those guys have been playing soccer their whole life. You know, they, they played soccer before they were basketball players. So you run out there and you got a, you got a guy on your team that's jealous because you're over there and he clips you. And next thing you know, you tear your ACL up and you're out. Because there is the one thing that, you know, doesn't get, you know, noted a lot overseas is that the foreign – we're foreign players, okay? So, 
there's a lot of jealousy with the foreign players, you know, because the way they're treated and the, the homegrown players, you know, there's a little jealousy there, a little envy because they're not making as much money as you are, which is understandable. They get treated differently, harsher than Americans do. And, you know, you see it and, and, and basically unfair, you know, and you, I've, I've, I've taken teammates out to dinner because I find out they haven't been paid in a month. So, you know, every Tuesday and Thursday night, I would take my teammates out. They love pizza. You know, they, they're just pizza. You know, in Turkey, they just love pizza. So every Tuesday and Thursday night, I would take them out to dinner and feed, you know, feed, their, feed them and, and feed their families and stuff because they weren't getting paid. It's, their living conditions were not good. You know, I had a couple guys stay with me. I, I had a three-bedroom flat. That was just me. You know, I had guys stay with me. They, you know, they didn't really – instead of sharing with, like, six people, like, hey, man, you stay with me, bro. I got plenty of room over here. You know, you just got to pick up after yourself, but, you know, you stay over here with me. Because I saw how hard it was for them, you know, so – and I fell for them. So, you know, I tried to do what I could to to show them that, hey, man, I'm not the enemy here. You know, I'm with you guys. I'm I'm with you. And when they weren't getting paid, you know, I, we set out. We, we were like, we, y'all, y'all, we're all going to sit out because they have no union. They have none of that. You know, they're, they're bound to do whatever they're told to do. And when these guys are not getting paid and they got families, man, you know, that's not right. They're playing for free. And so uh, we would, we'd sit out, we'd sit out of practice and we'd be like, yo, you know, we don't, if you're not going to pay these dudes, we ain't playing. And then, you know, that, that, then they would get paid then because you got to, you know, they got a lot of money invested in it and they're paying the Americans a lot of money. So, you know, and that, and that right there, showed, you know, our teammates, we were down with them. Like, Hey, they are one of us. You know, we don't, we have no business not liking them or hating them. These guys are good dudes and they're with us. And they, I mean, these dudes are run through a wall for you. I remember one time in the game, a dude hacked, a, you know, hacked me like, you know, like elbowed me on the top of the head. I gave him a shot stick and was going up. He elbowed me on the top of the head and two of my teammates came over here and punched him. I was like, man, I was like, well, I don't think I've got this much love in the NBA on my own team, but you know, here I have got some foreign dudes that barely speak English, and they got my back for real. Like, they was ready to go to war. I mean, like, they, and, you know, at those games, they have the police with the riot gear because, you know, people be throwing things on the at you on the floor. Like, you'd be at the free throw line, somebody throw one of those um, thick, like, thick coins that's about as thick as a silver dollar, you know, and hit you in the head, and, you know, they're always smoking there. You almost need to be playing with a gas mask with all the cigarette smoke that's in there. You know, it's almost like playing in California with the smog in the arenas. It's, it's like terrible. So, but you know, they, they you know, great kids, man. I I enjoyed. I kind of was a I kind of was a coach over there too as a player. You know, just trying to teach guys certain things and, um, you know, and and trying to you know teach guys certain things about the game. And that kind of got me into coaching when I was done. And that's how I got into the CBA and wanted to do being coaching because I felt I enjoyed working with kids. I enjoyed working you know, with players and showing them things as long as they listen. And uh, that was awesome. You did get involved with uh, the CBA in, in Rockford. 2001-2002 uh, brought uh, the Rockford Lightning to the uh, the CBA championship game also in Sioux Falls. Uh, the coaching experience uh, then, uh, a couple of years later, uh, you, I guess you could say, you found your second career, your, your, uh, your uh, second act uh, in basketball, uh, as now, uh, to this day, what we're talking about a 15-year period as a color analyst uh, on the on the Bulls coverage, uh, certainly something that you warmed up to, uh, Stacy. And uh, 
you've got a whole new cult following out there uh, that uh, has uh, come to enjoy you and accept you as part of their basketball experience in Chicago. You, you and your longtime uh, partner, Neil Funk, uh, who uh, just uh, retired uh, recently. Now you've got, you got to break in a whole new partner now for the next run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got I to gotta be Neil Funk, like Neil Funk was to me. You know, he... Uh, you know, he, he's one of the best that's ever done it. One of those iconic voices, man, that you don't hear anymore. You know, it's over 30 years um, that he's put into this game, you know, as a radio and a radio play-by-play and as a TV play-by-play. And it's going to be really weird, you know, looking over to my left side and not seeing him there. You know, I, I mean, I get emotional thinking about it. Like, you know, it's going to be kind of like, you know, you know Mike Gorman and, and Tommy Heinsohn, you know, when, when they decide to call the quits. You know, in Boston, those two guys are iconic, you know, and when people are people are so used to seeing those type of guys every single night, they trust those guys. Every team has their broadcasters that they love, they trust, they rely on. It's like getting up watching the news, you know, every night you're, you're tuning in, you know, back in the day, Walter Cronkite, you know, you're, you're tuning in to watch, you know, Sam Donaldson and all these guys who are, who are great, you know, TV news guys and you trust them. And it's the same way in sports. You know, you get Vin Scully. You know, you go on down the line of all the the great, you know, play-by-play guys, Harry Carey. You know, you got, you know, all the in Chicago. You got all, you know, Hawk Harrison at the White Sox. You know, sports towns like Boston, you know, New York, Chicago, L.A., really, really deep-rooted sports towns love their local broadcasters. And it's it's awesome to be part of something like that to a, to a culture – that embraces sports that that are diehard fans they're not the they're not the fans that are going to jump ship on you when you're struggling i mean they'll let you hear they, you'll hear about it when you're struggling but they stay loyal to their teams you can't nobody else can say anything about their teams you know if, if, if boston sucks boston fans say boston sucks but if somebody from new york or chicago say you know boston sucks it's going to be a fight you, we can talk about our team. You can't. And that's the same way it is in Chicago. New York doesn't care. New York says anybody can talk about our team. They all suck. <laughs> that's what they're saying. So, right. you know, but you, you like to see that you like to see the fandom of all the, of all the fans in different cities, man. It's really great. But, you know, for me, you know, going into this, Jerry Krause was now again, this is Jerry Krause again. Jerry Krause was always trying to get me to be in the media. You know, he always, he felt I had the personality, you know, he offered me my first job as a radio uh, analyst. And this was before John Paxson, because John Paxson, before he was a GM, was the radio analyst with Neil Funk. And he offered me that job before John got it. He offered me the job, um, you know, before Daryl Dickey, who ended up passing away uh, while he was doing it. And he offered me the job before any of those guys. And he, you know, took me out to lunch. He said, hey, I got an opportunity for you. You know, what do you think about being the radio, you know, play-by-play? I mean, the um, the analyst for the oh, radio. Yep. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I said, Jerry, because at the time I was coaching in the CBA. And I was really – my path was really to be an, be an NBA coach. That was my, that was my path. And I, mm. that's why I went to the CBA because I felt like – I needed, you know, I could get, I could have got on anybody. I could have got on any staff in the NBA, you know, um, and been like, you know, started off as like a film guy. Started off on the bottom and worked my way up. I felt like the CBA was the best opportunity for me to go learn and be hands on, 
and and actually get roll my sleeves up and and get dirty because in minor leagues you know in the in the CBA and the um, the G League you know the coach pretty much has to do a lot. It's a little bit different now because the G Leagues are run by the NBA team, so they actually have a general manager. They have a, a front office in place. They have a coaching staff in place. They have the training staff in place because it's part of the NBA team. Um, but the CBA was nothing like that. The CBA was like every man for himself, God for us all. Like we didn't have the the structure. Um, we didn't have that kind of identity that the G League now has. And they should be thanking the CBA because the CBA was the one that gave them the the blueprint of how to do all that. But when I was in the CBA, I was the coach. I had one assistant. We didn't have like four or five assistants. We didn't have a player development coach. I was the player development coach, the head coach. I was the trainer. I taped ankles. I drove the bus. Um, I, I broke down film. I did the job of probably what 10 people do. And it was great experience for me because I learned how to break film down. I learned how to dissect what teams are doing, being able to edit films and, and to show my team the best way to dissect the team, um, just like the NBA guys do. So I was able to get a lot of experience doing that. Um, you know, unfortunately, like the NBA, you know, now everything's computerized. You can get everything on your computer sent to you. But back then you were getting VHS tapes and it, it was like Pony Express. So if I needed a tape from Sioux Falls, I had to wait till the stagecoach came in a week later to deliver me a tape of Sioux Falls versus Yakima so I could break down both teams. But, you know, you, you did you did what you had to do. I mean, it was fun. It was learning experience. And it really prepared me um, to, to go to the next level. But what happened is life, you know, family. You know, my kids at that time, I had to make an executive decision. You know, my kids at the time were, you know, like, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old. And they needed, they needed me to be there. You know, they needed me to, you know, coaching is a 365, 24, you know, 7 job. You know, you're constantly coaching. And, you know, I, I was missing things. I was missing events at their school. I was missing, you know, their sporting events. And I, I just felt so bad about it because, you know, my dad is military. And I used to sit out when I played baseball or football. I used to sit out there. And, and those were times, you know, Bernie, you probably know this too because you're a little bit older than me. But those were times when parents didn't go to games. You know, par parents only went to the big game, like a championship, city championship. But most parents worked, and your coach came by and picked you up or another parent took you to the game. But no one, the parents never watched the games. They just were working. So I grew up always wanting the, my dad to be there, you know, because my dad was always at my older brother's games, and I just want him to always see me. But, you know, he was always working. So I understood that. So in my little mind as a child, I, I, always, I put in my head, like, when I get older – and I become a father, I'm going to be there for everything of my kids. I'm not going to miss anything. And I, I, I will be honest with you, I probably have, I probably have made 95% of everything they've ever done. And, wow. I'm, and I'm a, if I could get 100, I would. But that's, why, that's one of the reasons why I left coaching because, you know, I, I could have easily been in the NBA by now. I've probably been a head coach, to be honest with you. Um, hmm. But I, ch I chose family. I chose family over – you know, my goal and dream that I wanted to do because I wanted to be a player that won a championship and then coach the championship team. That that was my goal. And I remember Tex Winter, the late, great Tex Winter, telling me, because I, I used to sit on the bench and we'd be dissecting things and he'd ask me what I saw and stuff. And he told me, I'm going to be a great coach. You'll be a great coach. And I'm like, no, never. I will never coach. And it's funny as a player, you sit there and you see all the egos and you see all the – 
you know, the day-to-day workings of NBA players and the relationships that they have with front office and coaching staff. And, I, and I've always been one of these people that, like, I can't tolerate back talk. I couldn't tolerate somebody, you know, you know, if I ask you to do something, you know, you basically tell me to F off. I, I, I punch you in the face. That that's that's my mentality. So I, I told I used to tell Tex I said I couldn't do it. I don't know how y'all do it, but you know I commend you. But I can never. I don't think I could ever be a coach because I, I don't I don't like egos. I don't like players who are not willing to put themselves, you know you know with the team. It's a we thing, not a I thing. And the Bulls were not like that. We were a we thing. But just from afar, looking at other teams and listening to how other people other you know, guys talk to coaches, being on a team with J.R. Ryder and, and, you know, Christian Laidner on that team in Minnesota, it was kind of a circus and seeing how they interacted with the coaches. I, I was just like, nah, I could never do it, but I ended up doing it. And then I ended up, you know, basically, you know, taking a step back and, and, you know, spending time with my kids, you know, being a dad, you know, because I felt like at that time, Bernie, I had my time. My kids were toddlers when I played. So I had my, I retired early, you know, I could have probably, I probably could have hold, held on, you know, and played another five years and, you know, but I, I'm, you know, if you're not having fun doing what you're doing, you know, it's hard to get up and go to work. You know what I'm saying? You know, you got to love what you do. You got to, whether you're a garbage man, you're a teacher, you're a fireman, you know, whatever you do, I tell people this all the time, you got to have a passion and a love for it. And I had a passion and love for it for the longest period of time. But what happens a lot of times with players who who think outside the box a little bit is like, you know, I would play this game for free. You know, if they said, hey, we weren't paying anybody, I would have played for free because I just love basketball. I love competing. I've always been that way. And, you know, the game is fun. It's a kid's game. But as you get older, you start to see the business side of it. And business kind of takes over. And the fun kind of kind of drains out a little bit because you get to see what it's truly all about. It's about business. At the bottom line, it's about dollars and business. And so it's not fun anymore. You know, winning championships are fun. Playing in the playoffs are fun. But when you go to a team that that has no aspirations of doing those things and it's all about, you know, getting paid and they don't care about anybody else, you know, the game becomes sour. You know, you go from the the penthouse to the outhouse and and, uh, you go quick. And it's just not fun. And so that's that's one of the reasons why I say, you know, you got to go to work and, and, you know, you know, and enjoy what you do and give your best effort every single night and every single day that you're out there because, you know, no one's promised tomorrow and you want to leave a legacy. And, and, you know, that's what I try to do every day. Let's say you won a greater uh, championship, Stacy, and that's uh, the uh, you you won the you won the title of Father of the Year, as far as I'm concerned. And I just know when when my father passed away over 20 years ago, and I can remember getting up and giving his eulogy, and I said he gave the the gift that you can't put a price on, and that's the gift of time uh, to yeah. me and my my younger brother. And uh, it sounds like the, that's exactly uh, what uh, what you aspired to and what you put into uh, into practice. Uh, in, in terms of your experience uh, as a parent. And uh, I, I commend you for that, really. That's, that's, that's great that you made that decision at the time. And the fact that things have worked out uh, for you uh, in the media, uh, longstanding. We've, talked, uh, we've touched on today's game through, through this interview and a number of uh, uh, different points that you've made, uh, the physicality of the game then as opposed to now, the rivalries, uh, the no friends, if you will, 
in terms of uh, what was uh, what was the game then as opposed to the game now. And uh, you know, one of the points that uh, that I, I wanted to uh, to get your uh, your take on is the whole concept of the college game to the pro game. Now, you were in an era where four-year development at the college level. I mean, you're, you're a great example of that, that you stayed through four years at Oklahoma. I had some great experiences, came as close as you did to a national championship. But in terms of the development of your game, Stacy, as you look at the game today, it's all about one and done, two and done maybe. Uh, it, it's really seems to have changed the game radically in terms of fundamentals and development for players translating their game to the pro level. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's there's so many things that you get at the college that's invaluable, number one. Okay, because listen, all these kids who come out earlier are, have the potential and the ceiling to be great players. They wouldn't be at the level that they were if they weren't considered great players. The thing that you get in college besides the basketball and the experience and being taught the fundamentals of the game is life. You know, learning how to deal with, you know, um, adversity, learning how to, you know, function – uh, when things look like it's unfunctionable, you know, for instance, here you are, the cafeteria is closed on the weekends. What do I do? I'm a kid from the inner city. I have no money. You know, what do I do? You, you have to find ways, you know, get the guys together. How much do you have? I got a dollar. How much you got? I got $2. All right, let's put it all together and go buy a little Caesar pizza. When little Caesar first came out, if you remember, little Caesar used to have a, a promo buy one, you know, buy one plain topping, get the other one free. So we ate a lot of cheese pizza. We didn't have enough money for that pepperoni, but we always had cheese pizza. And it beat starving, eating hot dogs. And, you know, we were the typical college students. See, we couldn't work during the school year. You know, you hear all these people say, oh, well, you guys are getting education, yada, yada. But you don't really know what goes behind, what goes on behind closed doors as a college athlete. And so, you know, you know, with the cafeteria being closed, you know, college students being able to work, and be able to have spending money on the weekends to go to movies with their girlfriend. You know, most of these kids, you know, come from homes where their parents can't afford to send them money because they got, you know, brothers and sisters, you know, money's tight. Uh, they don't have the money to send their son or daughter at college, you know, a hundred dollars, say, Hey, here's a hundred dollars, you know, go, you know, go do this, go have some fun with it. They, they can't do that. So a lot of times these kids are starving, you know, they have no food. I remember in the NCAA tournament, you know, me and my roommate, you know, uh, Tony Martin, who's, who's now a, uh, who's just retired from the California highway patrol. Um, we used to sit in our room and man, we'd be starving. Like, man, I wish we could go get something to eat. I wish we had, you know, I wish we'd go get some chips or something. We, we didn't have any money. And so we struggled. And so these kids who come in here now, there's, there's two different kids. There's kids who go to the NBA because they have to take care of their family. That's the only way their family is going to, to be able to make it. And the pressure is put on those kids that they are the breadwinner. So they have that pressure of having to take care of their families. Then there's the, there's a, the other kid who doesn't want to go to school at all because that first kid would go to school if he didn't have that responsibility to have to take care of his family. And then there's that second kid who's talented who doesn't want to go to school at all. He just wants to go straight to the NBA, make money, drive a, drive a, a fancy car and have, you know, be on Instagram, you know, flossing and, you know, all that stuff. That's what he's there for. You know, but so you have two type of athletes and, you know, unfortunately, I, I just think that, you know, me personally, you know, LeBron is a freak of nature. You know, Kobe's yeah. a freak of nature. You think about all the success stories 
that guys who didn't go to college and came straight to the pros and how they played, there's not a lot of them. I mean, really, I mean, LeBron and Kobe, oh. Kevin Garnett, I mean, for every one of those guys, there's 10 guys that failed. The numbers are the numbers are proven. It's it's not it's not a high, not everybody who comes out after the first year or comes out you know straight from high school is a success story. And I think if if the NBA wanted to really try to curb that thinking a little bit, they should start talking about the guys who are not making it. You know, look up Lenny Cook, and find out what he's doing. You know, a uh, kid I coached in uh, in Rockford who's super talented. You know, it was a second-round pick of the Pistons, Corleone Young. You know, uh, had all kind of talent. Should be an NBA player. Had he stayed in school, let's say stayed in school three years, you know, he would have been better suited for the NBA. He'd have been mentally ready, physically ready. Um, a lot of these kids see, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, nowadays, you know, you look at when I was growing up, you know, we, we idolized NBA players. We idolized professional athletes. That's what we wanted to be. That was our goal to be an NFL player or a, uh, an NBA player. Cause that's what we saw on TV. You know, nowadays, you know, people, there's certain guys, you know, the, the, the people that people are idolizing now, you know, are rappers, you know, they're not idolizing to be LeBron James or Kobe Bryant anymore. There's some guys that are, but most of the guys see these, these rappers out here. They, you know, they got the, the cell phone monies, you know, they, you know, they, they want to be those kind of guys because it's easier to be a, a rapper like future who might be five foot 10 than it is to be LeBron James who's six foot nine, 270 pounds. You see what I'm saying? They, they're looking at it that way. And it's not a bad way, but they feel that they're, they connect better with the rappers because of the physicality, the size that they may be, instead of saying, hey, look, you know, look at, look at you know, Trey Young. I could be the next Trey Young. Or I could be Damian Lillard. You know, some of these guys, Chris Paul, you know, that I could be that type of player. But the money is so big nowadays, you know, Bernie. It's, it's hard for these kids to pass up. I'm not mad at them. You know, I'm, I'm like, yeah. hey, if you feel you're mature enough and you feel that you can get out there and do it, you know, then go do it. The, the thing that they have going for them compared to what we had going – that we didn't have going for us is – well, they don't have going for them is the fact that when they're coming out one or two years, they're coming on a young team. They're coming on team a team with guys that are 23, 24 years old. They're not coming on the team with veterans that are 32, 33 years old that have a wife and kids that are established pros that they can learn from, that they can sponge off of. Most of these kids are coming on teams that the average age is 25. So how are you learning? How are you learning from a 25 year old? Right. Um, no mentoring. 25, still learning. Exactly. So yep. the mentoring is there that we had coming out when I came when I came in the Bulls I was 21 years old I had Bill Cartwright who was 32 33 years old John Paxson 32 years old you know Michael you know Charles Davis Craig Hodges I mean Ed Neely I mean I had guys that were older guys that could take me and BJ to the side if we weren't doing what we were supposed to do pull us to the side almost like our father Bill Cartwright I give a lot of credit to because he played like a father role to me you know, he'd, he'd, he'd invite me over for dinner. We on the road. He's making sure I'm eating right, making sure I'm not out hanging out in the streets. I mean, I had that type of mentorship. And back in the day, Bernie, I don't know if you remember this, is that, you know, they used to have alcohol in the locker room. You used to have beer, oh, you know, yeah. in the locker room. Yeah. 
in the game. There was there was beer at the end of the game. And I remember I was 21 years old, getting ready to turn 22. And I went to go grab a can of beer after a game because uh, it was just there. I was thirsty. So I was, and, man, I, I mean, Bill, like, slapped my hand and literally like my mom and dad would do it, say, put that beer down. And you you wait a minute, man, I'm, I'm 21. I'm of age. Like, I'm a grown man. Okay, but, you know, you're looking at a seven-footer. You know, that's not happened. And you respect him because he, he's a veteran presence. And, you know, nowadays, not all teams are like that, but if you look at the teams in the NBA that are not successful, that, that they use that we're a young team, we don't have an identity. Well, what they're basically meaning is, is that we don't have the mentorship, the leadership of a veteran that can not only still play and still play at a high level, but those guys who are taking those young kids to the side and say, hey, look, you know, you can't be doing this. You got, you got to come you know, get your rest. You got to get some sleep. You got to stop hanging out. You got to come to practice, focus, listen to the scouting report. You know, a lot of these kids, are, like I said, are coming on teams where, you know, they're 24, 25 years old. You know, they don't have that veteran, that veteran presence. And it shows when they play. It, it, indeed the case. As, as we, uh, we wrap up and bring it uh, right to the, literally to the present day for you as the longtime analyst on the Bulls broadcast, uh, recent hire of Billy Donovan uh, as the head coach. Uh, how do you yeah. see for the future of the Bulls, a team that uh, didn't uh, win their way into the bubble and uh, are looking uh, for uh, some uh, future, obviously looking for uh, a different direction here in the future for the franchise? Well, I, I commend the Bulls, um, you know, with the hire of, you know, Arturis and, and Mark, and, and now you go get Billy Donovan. I think before this was all said and done, you know, people were always wondering why, you know, uh, the front office was not moving on Jim Boylan sooner, you know, when there were some names out there. Well, they were doing their due diligence. They're, they were giving, they were giving you, know, you know, Jim Boylan an opportunity to show why he should be the head coach moving forward before they made any kind of evaluation on anybody else. And once they saw what they saw with him, they probably felt they needed to look elsewhere. And then all of a sudden, here comes Billy Donovan falling out of the sky like a pot of gold. You know, he's one of the, he's one of the really good coaches in the NBA. You know, I know a lot of people, oh, he had these 3-1 leads, yada, 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 yada. Okay, his best coaching job was last year. That team was not even – you know, pick to be a playoff caliber team, let alone the fourth seed in the West. Um, what he did with that team, just having you get a trade with Chris Paul, you know, you have a veteran point guard. You don't know how that's going to work. You don't know if he's still mad about the Houston situation. Is he going to be disruptive? Is he going to be a pro pro? You don't know. And you saw, I mean, he, they, they both had great chemistry together. Uh, the one thing I do know about Billy um, from what I've talked to people about, he's a player's coach in this league. I think that's what people don't understand, man. You got to have a pulse of your players. You got to understand your players inside and out and they got to know that you got their back as a coach. And Billy Donovan has done that. Billy Donovan, when, when, when they lost that three, one lead, to uh, Golden State that year with uh, Durant and Westbrook and easily could have won the championship that year. I think it was his first year. And they lost. He could have thrown every player under the bus. He could have said, hey, you know, Kevin Durant took too many shots. You know, they, they uh, you know, Westbrook was out of control. He could have said a million things to deflect, you know, off of him. But he he stood he he basically laid on the sword. It was my fault, you know. Coaching, I should have made some better decisions. He stood up and took blame for that loss. And a lot of coaches not going to do that. The great ones will, 
But a lot of a lot of a lot of coaches won't do that. They'll blame the player shooting. We didn't execute. Uh, we should have made some more passes. They won't look in the mirror and say it's my fault. And I and I I mean from that day on, I've been a big Billy Donovan fan. I knew about him as a coach in Florida. Joe Kim Noah always talked about him. Joe Kim Noah is a if he was running if, if Billy Donovan was running for president, he'd be his campaign manager because he he speaks nothing but. You know, I mean, he walks on water compared to, you know, with Joe and, and Al Horford and all those kids that came from Florida on those two national championship teams. And he's a great player development. I mean, look at, you know, you look at uh, what he did with that young team, you know, in Oklahoma City. He got those kids playing at a high level. And, you know, they, they were probably one player away from really getting deep in the playoffs. You know, Chris Paul can, can take you to a certain level, but you need that other guy. And they didn't really have it, but they positioned themselves to be able to have, you know, future, you know, even if they move Chris Paul or whatever, they're going to have a good future. But Jim, but uh, Billy Donovan for us is going to, is going to be a godsend because the fact is he's good with young talent. Um, Lowry marketing is not going to have a Lowry marketing season as he had last year. I, that was a, that was one of those seasons that you scratch your head and go, where did that come from? Because this kid was ascending to be on a star level. You know, uh, he's talented. He, you know, I, I just think last year with the coaching uncertainty, you know, and uh, just their second coach in two years, you know, I, I think it frustrated the players a little bit. They didn't know their roles. Um, Zach Levine is knocking on the door of superstardom if he's not already walked in. Uh, Kobe White's there. There's a lot of talent here. When they start talking about all these young teams in, in the NBA, Sacramento has all this young talent. Phoenix has all this young talent. You know, Brooklyn has some young talent. Now with Kevin Durant and, and uh, you know, Kyrie Irving there, they're going to be a super team. You know, the Bulls' core group, I mean, they're the second youngest team in the league. And if you go down their roster – Zach Levine, Kobe White, you know, Wendell Carter Jr., Lowry Markin, and Otto Porter, who's like the old veteran who's only 25. I mean, so you, you've got to you – you, and you're going to get the number four pick this year, which is going to be another player that you're going to be able to plug in to play. And no telling who they're going to sign as a free agent because this front office knows. I mean, Arturis was one of the, one of the guys that helped build that – you know, Denver Nugget team that we're seeing right now that everybody's just amazed with how they're playing. Uh, he was part of building that team. So, you know, coming here to Chicago, already having a solid core, you know, I got nothing but confidence in these guys from what I've seen so far and, and what they've done since they've been here in such a short time. Man, the future is bright here in Chicago. Well, I certainly hope so. Hopefully you can go get that same pair of sunglasses that Billy Tubbs told you to get and uh, that the future will be bright for you and the Bulls in Chicago. And, uh, Stacy, we try to make everybody feel at home here on the games people play. I've got a vintage uh, Michael Jordan, uh, UNC Carolina, the nice powder blue apparel. I tried to make you feel at home. I think if you're in the same room with me right now, you might have rubbed my back. That's another story for another day. I say that with trepidation, but with great yeah, love. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But with, hopefully I could bring you some luck. Uh, but uh, great, uh, great love for you, and want uh, want to thank you very much. Uh, this has uh, been a great experience uh, having the opportunity uh, to have you on the games people play, and and you, you certainly uh, played well with us today. And uh, from the guy who says, if you're scared by a dog, I was reading some of your yeah. uh, the, the yeah. chemisms, Stacey, <laughs> as, as we close out, could you give me the name of my hometown? Is Stoneham, 
and I'm in my basement right now in Stoneham, Mass., kind of like Wayne's World. Could you give me a drive home safely, Stoneham, as we sign off? Would that be okay, sir? Yes, yes, sir. Stoneham, we're coming to a conclusion. Drive home safely. Beep, beep. Thank you. There you go. I can't add anything to that, Stacey, except thank this, you. I'm going to say this about this show. I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, I, I've done a few podcasts. This by far is one of the best I've ever been on. You guys, you do a great job, Bernie. You're well-informed. I told you you should be working for the FBI or the Secret Service with some of this information that you've come up with. I, I, went, I told my wife yesterday, I'm like, oh, my God, I, I swear I think this guy's been living in my vent for the last 20 years. He knows more about some of the stuff that I, that I talked about or I've never talked about. You knew. And I was highly impressed with that, man. And, and like I said, it, it, this is a heck of a show, and I hope the listeners appreciate what you bring to the table because you do your homework. Uh, you're very thorough, and it was a pleasure for me to come on this show, and I appreciate you guys having me. Absolute pleasure getting to know you, Stacy. and I can only hope on the other side of uh, the pandemic that uh, we'll have an opportunity to get together in person, maybe with our good friend Harry Tynowitz, who's part of our platform on the games people play. That'd be great. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. We'll look forward to that. Thank you, Stacy, and uh, don't be a stranger. You're part of our games people play family, and uh, great oh, yeah. love to you. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate you guys having me on. Have a good weekend. All right. That was Stacy King, and uh, God bless uh, Stacy. Great to have him with us. Uh, thank you to our executive producer, Andy Bernstein, to Todd and Kiwan out in Seattle, everybody that makes the games people play possible. And uh, for all of our crew, it's Bernie Corbett saying, play the game well, everybody. <laughs>